Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Are you a brew head? I'm a brew head. Y'all a brew heads? Yeah, we brew heads. So pour a glass of craft beer. We can do this. Yeah. What's good, y'all? This is C Certified Brewhead. Welcome to episode 73 of Beer Not the Shit Podcast, Adjunct Series, Quarantine Edition. Guys, this is actually our final live episode before a summer break. We are going to take a couple weeks off after this. It has been 15 months straight of anywhere between two and four podcasts a week for me or live sessions. Uh, I feel like it's a little deserved. I've enjoyed this thoroughly, but now with the world opening up, it seems like, uh, you know, Maybe we're going to switch this up. So we have a great way to wrap this up. But before I bring in the brewery, you guys know, and this is the last time we'll be talking about them for this stretch, the podcast is brought to you by Dr. Nick's Amazing Man Stuff. There we go. Look at these bad boys. So uh, you guys could probably tell me what I need to say about at this point. But these guys are a, a beard product company based in Massachusetts. They We connected with them through a good friend of the show and these guys are super cool. They have a real craft beer ethos. They really approach their beard products from the you know the way that breweries approach, uh, create craft beer, and that's why we really mess with them. I got these in January, and we started working with them in April. So I use them literally like no joke every day. I'm not a beer product guy. I don't have a problem with beard products. I just never bothered. But using these every day, I genuinely enjoy it. So these guys. All of the products are made in the States. Everything is made locally from packaging to what's inside it. All of the oils, the essential oils, as opposed to those cheaper fragrance oils that kind of mess with the skin, these guys use essential oils. Um, they're actually blessed by a Reiki master in Hawaii, which is super cool. So I'm going to show you one of the, each of the different products and just talk about them real quick. The main reason we got in touch with them actually was this product here, the Beard Beer. So they have an IPA and a stout, and they actually this has got the stout has scents of vanilla, coffee, and chocolate, and they make the essential oils by putting those ingredients in the oils and letting them sit, and they create them from those specific products, which is wild to me. Um, so the beard one is crazy. Now what they're actually going to do with the beard beer series, they're going to do a brewmaster series version of these, where they're collaborating with big breweries on the east coast. So they're doing Lawson's, Treehouse, Trillium, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, vitamin C, which is super cool. And they're going to create beard oils after the big beers from, from these companies in conjunction with the breweries themselves, which I very, very much appreciate. They have their regular signature series, beard oils as well. Uh, this particular one, the old number nine, I love this. It says it's got lavender, orange blossom, and sandalwood. So just a nice sort of musky, manly scent there. I love it. They have the balm sticks. I was a bit of an idiot when I first got this and I was putting it on my hand and then rubbing it into my beard when you're just supposed to like put it directly on your damn face. It's like a little, kind of like a deodorant stick type of vibe in there. And you just, they, not Dr. Nick, I don't think he's a real doctor, but he told me that when you put this on, it, your beard only takes what it needs. You can't actually put too much on, which I, I quite appreciated. And the last one, this is super interesting, is called Shelter in Face, a beard sanitizer. It has uh, two flavors. They have blood orange and key lime. Come on. Come on. You got this. Come on. Come on, focus. It's not doing it. And oh, there it is. There it is. And basically, you just squirt this on your face. Um, you know, if you've been out, he even said you can squirt it on and do it over your mask, even the sanitizes your mask. And the, the, the bright citrus kind of helps you, you know, awakens you or something. Apparently, that's what citrus does. So... <clears throat> they have you know, a bunch of products that I personally, genuinely enjoy using. 
I also, of course, have a promo code for you. If you use the code BAOS21, you're going to get 15% off your order, which is a bloody good deal. BAOS21. The website is drnicks.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-N-I-C-K-S. And if you spend over 40 bucks, you actually get a year free shipping in all of North America, even here in Canada. And uh, they're about 20-something bucks each, so you order two products because you're going to need more than one. Mate, free shipping, 15% off. Go get it. Dr. Nix, guys, thank you so much for sponsoring us. It's been uh, a really fun run. We've still got a couple more pieces we're going to put in our feed and stuff, but that is it for the podcast one. Um, genuinely stoked to work with the man. I, I, we don't do this stuff very much, right? Like we've been sort of cautious about who we work with and, and you know, on this brand, and um, these guys are a great fit. Love their stuff. So thank you so much. Now, with that said, the way we're going to wrap up this first sort of like quarantine edition of the adjunct series is going to continue because that's just where we're going to do random interviews and just do fun stuff. The quarantine edition was just, you know, while we're all at home and it seems like that is not the case anymore. Um, so these guys are a brewery in a region that we visited in 2019. Tiffany and I, when I say we, we have raved about the region, um, at length, we love it. So it was very, very like stoked to connect with these guys. Um, beyond excited to try their stuff. So I'm just gonna bring them right on in. Everybody, welcome Robbie and Chris from Virginia Beer Co. Boys, <laughs> great to connect. Thank you guys for hanging out, man. I'm uh, honored. It's fantastic to have you here. Yeah, cheers. Thanks so much for having us. It's a, uh, an excuse to share some uh, beers and cheers, as we say on a Thursday night, and. Uh, we're, we're glad to hear this is the end of the quarantine edition as well. That means good stuff for all of us. It does. It's. Uh, I was like, you know what? It made sense to wrap it up now. We booked all the pods until the end of June because we're like, oh, let's see what happens in the summer. And it turned out to be the move. And what a way to wrap it up. Um, obviously, for me, being that the borders have been closed for 15 months, I guess, maybe longer, uh, I obviously don't get the American beers that I used to get. So this is a huge treat for me to be able to get some stuff, and particularly from um, a region that I'm so excited about. Like I genuinely – I didn't expect Virginia to be this. Both the, the people were amazing. The scenery is beautiful, and the beer was money. So with that said, we have three thirsty gentlemen. Shall we get into this first one? We're going to rock. Yes, there we go. This is the provisional Kolsch. Obviously, we're going to start with the crispy boy. Uh, tell us about this one, guys. Five point one percent, looking gorgeous. Uh, I'm going to defer to Chris on this one. Something I'm sure we'll get into is our our varying tastes <laughs> in beers, and obviously, we we both love what the brewery puts out, or we wouldn't let it hit the uh, the lips of our of our fans. But uh, oh. this is definitely on the Chris the Chris side of life. <laughs> okay, well, that's a good episode. <laughs> Yeah, I tend to uh, I tend to favor that malt life in general. <laughs> I respect that. Uh, that's that's me. So, uh, provisional Kolsch is actually a beer we make um, somewhat regularly. Um, you know, it's not a core product of ours or anything like that. But uh, you'll you pretty frequently find it on tap if you uh, if you come by the brewery. Uh, very simple, um, just beautiful Pilsner malt. Uh, we use a hop that actually. Is called now called Adina. When we started using it, it was called ADHA 1940. So it was an okay. experimental that's now got a name. I love and, that. And uh, it's got a nice just touch of citrus on it. It's a Pacific Northwest hop. Um, so a new variety, like I said, just got the name. Hasn't been too widely used, but I think it it gives this really nice little edge to what is otherwise a very traditional German Kolsch. I love it. 
Boys, cheers. Thank you for hanging out. Cheers. I forgot cheers. to warn you before. I'm gonna throughout the podcast. I'm gonna do these. Uh, I do these like um, selfies. The whole podcast started from these stupid selfie reviews, and you had to do 365 beers in a year. And I did it when I first moved to Canada. I started 10 years ago, and um, I was like, "Well, there's not 300 beers." So I just and I just I did it. That's how I got into beer. And obviously, I was very wrong. This is beer. Oh, actually, this is beer 6,400. I think, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. So wow. point point yeah it is six thousand four hundred. So I'm what I do. I just didn't want you to think that I'm being rude and, and typing away on my phone. I just take the photo and I take a few one word tasting notes as you're telling me about it. So just the heads up. So I forgot to tell you before. Um, what was the name of this hop again? It's called Adina now. A D E E N A. Yeah. Okay. Um, so jot that down. Okay, that's awesome. I haven't heard of that one. Is so, that? Yeah. Go go. Yeah, no, when we first started brewing this beer, actually, we used a couple different hop varieties. I think the first maybe three batches were maybe Centennial and uh, Robbie might remember more, but we used a few different things. And then we finally, uh, one of our hop suppliers actually sent us some samples of this, what was an experimental at the time, and said, you know, it's kind of got some noble characteristics, but it's also got a little bit of that Pacific Northwest citrus to it. And uh, we, I think it was like the fourth batch we brewed with, with Adina. And uh, we haven't looked back. Every batch since then has been this Good exact this recipe. That's awesome, man. So the actual characteristics compared to, say, the um, – I guess is it – what hops are Colch typically use? Is it, it's not SARS. I know that's pills, but something like that? Yeah, Hautauer, something like that. Something that's you know traditional German, noble. Okay. Um, and you know, brewers use all kinds of different stuff with it. But, but this one we thought was a little bit unique and – it does have that just little pop of citrus in there that, mm. that changes the beer a little bit. That's what I'm getting. Yeah, this is awesome, man. Super dry, extremely refreshing, nice and balanced. Love it. It's awesome, man. Um, and I think, I think you. you'll find that, but based on kind of what Chris said there too, a lot of our, we, we always talk about like, what, what is our brewing style? Do we have one thing that connects the dots between all of our beers? And I do, I do personally feel like we, we brew a lot of traditional styles with, slightly modern twists, which, which feels very, uh, apropos of opening a brewery in, in, you know, colonial Williamsburg. Right. So, um, you know, this is a traditional Kolsch recipe with a modern hop variety. Right. So it's, it's trying to tie tradition to what is, you know, a little more interesting and different in these times. That's great. No, I love it, man. I think that's a, the great way to go. I think it's like interesting. It makes it, um, like, you, you know, you're tying it, like you said, traditionally with the now, but also, with you guys as well, with your specific taste, your unique twist on it, which, you know, in, in this crowded field that craft beer has become, it's uh, a great way to kind of stand out a little bit, you know, using a whole, a hop I've personally never heard of before, which is, I feel like I drink enough beer that I usually come across most of. So that's, I love it. Learn some. <laughs> Makes me happy, man. Um, this is fantastic. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm, I'm excited for, uh, for all the beers tonight. So, what we're going to start with is the beer stories uh, from both of you as well. Like, how did both of you guys get into craft beer, and then how did that lead on to Virginia Beer Co.? So, whoever would like to uh, kick it off. Yeah, I can I can jump in. So we um, so we both attended university at the College of William and Mary. So William and Mary is the second oldest university in the United States, located in Williamsburg, where our brewery is also located. And funny enough, now that Chris and I have uh, basically established our hopefully permanent roots here in Williamsburg, we were both transfer students. So we didn't actually choose William and Mary right out of the gate. 
Chris, okay. Chris was at Tufts. I, I was at the University of Rhode Island. So we were both attending university up north uh, and then kind of made our way down south to William & Mary. And we actually met at a uh, at a job at working college. We, we were the the young students who called alums and begged for money for the university, which, which <laughs> gave us a lot of uh, practice for fundraising when it came time to build a brewery. Love it. So we stayed in touch. I graduated first in 2005. Chris and his wife, Erin, graduated in 2007. Um, I came back to visit regularly, whether I was invited or not. I found myself on Chris's futon more, probably more often than, uh, than his wife, Erin, would have liked. But I somehow <laughs> ended up as the best man in their wedding. Um, and we, we continued to stay close. Chris moved up to New York. I was up in the D.C. area, Washington, D.C. area. Uh, and it, it afforded us opportunities living in bigger cities all, all of a sudden to visit one another and find the best craft beer bars, find the most interesting breweries in New York City and Washington, D.C. We'd find ourselves visiting other cities, Boston, uh, Chicago, St. Louis, <laughs> San Diego. Um, the passion mm-hmm. for craft beer started at college, frankly, just drinking too much beer and, and getting bored with the, the beer we had access to and seeking out more interesting beer. And there was one really interesting craft beer bar in Williamsburg called The Greenleaf, which is still in operation today. And their their big uh, slogan was was uh, 40 apps and 40 taps. So it was appetizers and it was craft beer. And That's it was good. great for, for college students who didn't have a ton of money. We could afford appetizers <laughs> and we could, we could share pictures of craft beer. That's awesome. So the the, pa- the passion started at the bar and led to us, um, you know, making a little money working in the financial fields, respectively, and, and staying in touch and, and just traveling to these different cities. And we, we started trying to one up one another. I'd, I'd go to a, a new craft beer bar in Washington, D.C. and tell Chris all about what I found. And then he'd one up me by going to Blind Tiger Alehouse in New York City and one mm-hmm. up, you know, giving me his his rundown of the weekend. And, and that led to us starting to homebrew separately uh, and trying to come up with interesting recipes and recipe ideas and all of a sudden, every time we were together, whether it was with you know just Chris and his wife or their families or my families or our mutual friends from William and Mary, it was beer talk and beer talk and us hauling cases of beer that we found at, at breweries and at Total Wine stores to, to various <laughs> cities so we could share them with our friends who had far less interest in sharing them with us. You know, once we got to the eighth one and we were only sampling out four or five ounces at a time and refusing to let people finish the bottle so we could move on to the next one. Um, so the passion was there. The, the the beer nerd level, I think, was was there early on. And and it was really the camaraderie, I think, that brought us together. I and mean, we enjoyed spending time with one another. Uh, like I said, I was the best man in Chris and Aaron's wedding. Um, and the, the desire to do something together and to do something different than what we were doing, which, which was, you know, financial consulting, corporate finance. It was it was making a living, but it, it certainly wasn't a living a dream. Amazing. Chris, you want to you want to pick up from that? <clears throat> Yeah, sure. I think, um, like Robbie said, you know, it's kind of starting in college, but there's certainly formative, like, I think most people have this that are in the craft beer world or enjoy craft beer, have like formative experiences that you do remember, you know, even all these years later. And Robbie mentioned Blind Tiger. When I moved to New York after school, um, I spent basically all my free time at Blind Tiger and there was a place called the Pony Bar on the west side of Manhattan as well. Um, and like those experiences for me, we, like Robbie said, we'd already kind of sought out some beers and found new interesting things. But like just going through those draft lists and seeing the care that these bars took in their beer and how they curated selections, all these things that like for me, it took it to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, you know, so so when I think back on like on formative experiences, those are those are really big for me. And it only kind of, you know, <laughs> went crazy from there. And 
you know, beyond that, there are all those, there are specific beers too that I think everybody has, um, you know, being from New England myself, um, and we're talking, this is back in like 2005, you know, Harpoon IPA was one of the earliest IPAs in New England. Right. Um, so drinking that for the first time and discovering that beer can be something different and exciting with flavors that you've probably never encountered before in any other beverage, True. you know, um, I like thinking back on those moments because it's been a long time since then and a lot of things have changed in the industry, but it's, but it's kind of fun to, to look back on, on what it was and what first piqued my interest at least. I love that. And that's a, it's a great, you, that's really make a good point because it's even more fascinating to try those older beers now with the context of those last 15, 16 years oh, yeah. and be like, oh yeah, like I can remember this, like you say, this is not what I thought in my head that it tastes like but you can still appreciate the journey a little more it's um it's always fun to come back to, to that yeah that's really true and you know back then this is 2005 like i said you think about new england you think about you know trillium now you think about treehouse you think about Lawson's, all these things back then it was long trail um magic hat yeah harpoon on a creek sam adams yeah and i think yeah. it and like even this Kolsch right here, my first Kolsch, I still remember, it was Harpoon Summer Ale, um, a beer they stopped making but just brought back this summer and I'm dying to get some. <laughs> um, so like when we talk about beers and stuff at the brewery and we make so many different beers, I often do think back on, on things like that and think, you know, I really loved experiencing a Kolsch for the first time. Mm. Let's try to do that for, for other people who are just getting into craft beer. That's dope. And that's definitely something I want to touch on when we get into a bit more – into to Virginia Beer Co. And, and what you were trying to cater to. That's that's awesome. I love that you're sort of where I see this going. You, you're catering to both the you know, people like us, the craft beer nerds, but also to be that gateway, that sort of bridge for people who come in there. You got anything that tastes like Coors Light or something? And then you're like, well, try this little little bad boy. And then all of a sudden, you're like, wow, there's so much flavor. You know, I love that. I feel like that's yeah. one of the most underrated things that a brewery can do. I feel like there, there's too many beer nerds that are like, yeah, yeah, that's like pedestrian or whatever. But like, if it's not for those beers and that approach, then there would be no craft beer industry because it's just going to, there's only so many bearded white dudes, you know? Even though neither of you guys have beards. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask why no, neither of you, what's up, what's up with the no beards? We hired a very talented brewmaster specifically to have someone who could have a beard for the two of us. <laughs> I love it. Craig, if you saw if you saw Robbie try to grow a beard, you would not have us on this podcast. Trust me. <laughs> uh, this is this I is haven't a, shaved since the pandemic started. <laughs> it's, you're looking you're looking great though. It's fantastic. <laughs> this is a, a no. You know you don't have to have a beard. It's okay. You've got the brew mask as long as somebody has a beard. I feel like it would just almost be strange. But you guys aren't the first. Okay, we'll spoken. Go. On. Well, that makes that makes me happy. We'll yes. be honest with you and tell you that you know Robbie mentioned we we were kind of like corporate finance guys, and so, so yeah. we kind of got the industry a little bit, but we didn't really get the industry. So we showed up at our first craft brewers conference. Let's just say a little overdressed for what oh, a uh, what the craft <laughs> brewers conference is. Yeah, we might have been the guys wearing uh, suit jackets and and sweater vests. When you know, like, you know oh. the, the the attire, the correct attire is sandals and and a <laughs> torn t shirt and shorts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess so we've that, come a long way since then. I, I'm proud of you guys. <laughs> actually, I didn't even get that. When? What was the timeline, by the way? From so from when? Actually, you know what? So what? What year was this when you guys decided like that your home brews were respectively? 
I imagine that's kind of what it was. The homebrews were getting better and better. And you were like, yo, let's, you know, let's do something about this. Since obviously the passion was there, you're spending all your free time and clearly a lot of money on, on beer. And like, like, how did that come about? How did it go from the homebrewing to actually being like putting together a plan, like a business plan? Well, it's, it's funny because we, we had kind of a lot of, uh, I, and I, I say this about our, our business quite a bit, I mean, there's a lot of hard work that's gone into it, a lot of um, business planning and, and, and specific thought, but also a ton of serendipity. And the funny thing was, you know, I think a big part of it was, was the friendship. So the fact that we stayed in touch, the fact that I, you know, felt so close to both Chris and his wife, Aaron, um, and their families and, and vice versa, them with my family, um, and then going beyond that, I mean, the passion for beer and trying the beers and visiting one another to, to make these trips, these pilgrimages to all these various breweries, uh, I will admit that Chris and Aaron were, were much more advanced in homebrewing than I ever was. My, my beers were, were frankly terrible. Um, and the more that I tried to make beer at home, the more I realized that I needed to go out and find better beer. And that also, I think, helped lead us to the decision to hire a, a brewmaster full time when we got the business plan going, we realized that while Chris and Aaron were, were more advanced than I was, that neither of us were professional brewers. So it was a passion, the excitement of brewing and hoping your recipe would come out the way you expected it to come out. Mm-hmm. The excitement of discovering those, those first flavors, those transition beers, those gateway beers that you'd never had before. Um, and then the, the excitement of, of doing something together. It was kind of a combination of, of the three that really pushed us. And, and I always give full credit to Chris's wife, Erin, for making the decision for us because she graduated from veterinary school and basically kind of said, I've got one chance to move somewhere and, and find a job as a vet. And, and, you know, we had looked at scouted different territories throughout those mostly because that's where both of our families are located and, and tried to decide where the right landing spot for the brewery was. But but Aaron giving us the green light to say, I can move somewhere and try to find a job. If you guys are going to do this, let's let's make the time frame after I graduate. And that, that was basically what happened. Chris took the first leap of faith and quit his job with J.P. Morgan. Uh, we decided on Williamsburg for a number of reasons, but the big one was that was where we felt the story was most authentic. Why are you opening a brewery in Williamsburg? And that's that's where we met. That's the college that kept bringing us back to Williamsburg anyway for, for volunteer work and reunions and alumni association events. So yeah, the story was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that was a big, a big move. Chris quitting his job outright and relocating his family to Williamsburg was a big first step. That's awesome. Yeah. And that was actually amazingly nine years ago. So it was, it was the, nine years. Uh, and 20, yeah. End of 2012. 2012. Yeah. We had, yeah, we had first started talking about the brewery kind of in 2009 as like okay. a, a real concept, um, you know, all that stuff. And then the move came at the end of 2012 <clears throat> and maybe like most brewery owners, we thought we'd be open in early 2014. So given it like that 16, 18 month timeline, we, uh, we, we crushed it and hit March 26, 2016. So Damn. a short three and a half years later. <laughs> Jesus. Hey man, I mean, I can, like from the stories I've heard from, from all sorts of folks all across the world, it's, uh, it's never an easy, I don't think you really there is a story where someone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we found a place. We got everything done. Everything was cheap and we opened up in four months. Like, I don't think that, I don't think that exists. So, like, that is crazy. So then you guys took the leap. You moved to Williamsburg before you sourced a uh, actual physical location? Or did you sort of, as in, like, you hadn't found the yeah. building yet? No, we had not. Um, wow. Written, you know, most of the business plan. Um, we had met with some real estate agents during, you know, visits before we moved back, but we had not found a building and that actually turned out to be the biggest problem for us. Um, you know, breweries have just have specific requirements and in Virginia, the laws were changing right around that time 
to allow breweries to have on-site tap rooms. So we want it to be oh. centrally located, but um, buildings that are centrally located in, in this town don't necessarily have 20-foot ceilings and tons of water and tons of natural gas and electricity, all those things. So we didn't find we didn't sign a lease. This was so we moved in September 2012. We signed a lease um, a couple of days before Christmas 2014. Wow! So it took, so it took a long, almost two long time. Jeez. So yeah, I, that's a really good point. Just to touch on that because that's not something I hear about a lot. Like I've heard about it in like Georgia or something. They had something recently changed where they weren't able to, but I hadn't heard that about Virginia. So can you maybe speak to that for people who? aren't in the region or hadn't visited and weren't familiar. So what, so technically prior to 2015, was it? Prior to 2012. 2012. Virginian craft breweries could not have a tap room where they would serve the product. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, so before that law changed, you could just sell, you could give like, I think it was a total of 10 ounces of samples in to a, to a visitor in one visit. Um, So you could like sell a tour for $10 and give a a couple samples at the end. That was it. Um, So the only avenue to grow your brewery was wholesale. So, you know, trying to bottle at that time and there weren't really cans. So bottle or, um, you know, sell beer to restaurants. So it was a really tough, tough thing for breweries. And and that's the reason we only had about 30 breweries in Virginia when that law changed. Um, Today we have 250 I think it's probably roughly the yeah, number. Amazing. Um, so it just made such a big difference because you can instantly generate some cash flow from that on-site tap room with great margins, um, and you know you can sustain a business that way without ever wholesaling at all. Yeah. Um, so it made it, it just changed everything in Virginia, and I don't think we wouldn't have come back here if that law hadn't been changing. Okay. Do you know why that law existed in the first place, or was it kind of like a remnant from prohibition, like a lot of the other stuff? I think it was just a remnant of, and probably something to do with the power of the um, restaurant lobby. Because, mm. you know, a lot of restaurants do feel like a brewery taproom is a direct competitor. Um, and there are still some restaurants in Virginia that, you know, that won't serve beers from their area because they feel like they have competitors. But um, actually, one of the first kind of craft breweries that opened up in the new wave, Hardywood Park, they're based in Richmond. Um, they, along with a few other breweries, are the ones that proposed the new legislation and pushed it through. So uh, there are two or three breweries that everyone in Virginia owes a, quite a debt of gratitude to for, for making that change happen. Interesting. Okay. I mean, it's kind of crazy when you think back, and it's something that's come up a bunch over this quarantine period, frankly. I don't know why. It just like I learned about the, there's a law here in Quebec about there was like 1928. It was some ridiculous prohibition law. And they weren't allowed to serve growlers and have a cool ship until like three years ago. And even as of right now, breweries are only now allowed to, because of the pandemic, allowed to sell um, the packaged goods. Because if you went to a brew pub here in Montreal, unless, it, say, if they had food, you can't buy the beer there, like to go, it's only on tap. So you'd have to go to a specialty beer store across the street to buy the beer from the brewery you were just at. And it, like just ridiculous things. Like, and, like the only time you could buy beer from there was if it had a, um, <laughs> I forgot the names, but just like a, just like a tap room license, you can bring your own food, like those type of ones. So like mm-hmm. that's ridiculous. So same time, I feel like there's just like so many absurd, outdated, irrational laws across, particularly across North America because I'm from Australia and I don't recall 
anyone talking about any prohibition stuff back in the day. Maybe there was, but I didn't really hear about it. It seems all pretty chill there. But over here, like every city, state, region, whatever, has, has its own craziness that they're trying to slowly overcome damn near 100 years later. It's, uh, it's kind of wild that, you know, that we're still dealing with it. But Virginia Sack Rooms, goddamn, that's amazing. I love it. Um, Liquid Happiness, Tiff is our producer. She said, love Virginia. Yes, we had a really, really, really good time. Um, so tell us about the town of Williamsburg, just so we can maybe set the scene. Because like I was telling you guys, I need kind of cruise through. I was there for like two hours, maybe less. I uh, got to see, I remember it being sort of um, historic as far as the architecture. I was in the down, I guess it's the downtown area uh, primarily. And I was there at nighttime, so I didn't really get to, to soak it up. But yeah, maybe paint the picture for folks who, who haven't been there, what, what Williamsburg is like. And then we'll move back into those early days of the brewery for you guys. So it's uh, it's it's one of America's oldest towns. Uh, it's it's one of the first landings of of the English coming over, starting the colonies um, here in Virginia. So uh, John Smith, uh, Pocahontas, those those stories uh, resonate. The Williamsburg area, Jamestown, Yorktown, um, and, and it's known for its historical connections. Like I said, William and Mary is the second oldest university, second second oldest charter in the United States, behind Harvard up north. Um, the Revolutionary War was was fought um, and ended in Yorktown specifically. So obviously, there's east, up up and down the East Coast, most of the Revolutionary War took place. But in terms of America's liberation from the British, uh, that that the Battle of Yorktown is what ended that that war. Um, hmm. So the the, the area is, is really traditionally known for its history. The early colonies in in Jamestown, um, the the state capital of Virginia uh, was in. Williamsburg originally, and then um, obviously the Revolutionary Warrior in Yorktown, and then the history of William Mary in particular kind of dominates the area uh, around Williamsburg. So what we've seen, especially having graduated from William Mary and, and having come back here as, as, as the college students now call us as townies, as full-time residents, um, and, and building a business here, we've seen Williamsburg dramatically grow into a culinary destination. Uh, the food scene here has has grown up. There there are international cuisines. There are different neighborhoods that actually have you know pockets of restaurants. We we were the second brewery to open, well, second microbrewery, excuse me, to open in Williamsburg. Uh, the first Aleworks Brewing Company has been here for more than twenty years um, in different iterations. The Williamsburg Brewing Company, Williamsburg Aleworks Brewing Company, now Aleworks Brewing Company. We were the second to come along. Now there's I think six different tap rooms in, cool. in Williamsburg. Um, and then obviously there's a rich brewing history here as well. Colonial Williamsburg is a living history museum that is still uh, actively involved. So if you want to come down and see a, you know, Thomas Jefferson impersonator, a George Washington impersonator, um, you know, they have, they have recreations on July 4th of, of the, the British invading. Um, but, but part of that, they actually have live brewing uh, seminars, historically accurate brewing seminars in downtown Colonial Williamsburg. And we're good friends with the head of historic foodways here. And, and we've actually collaborated with him in the past on, on a historic recipe. And we hope to do so again later this year. Uh, so it's, it's great because the, the roots go back centuries in terms of the brewing culture here in Williamsburg. And um, on top of that, Anheuser-Busch. It has a brewery right here in Williamsburg as well. And so if, if you look back, you take out the you know micro versus macro and any of that, just the fact that Williamsburg has this rich historic culture of brewing, um, we're really proud to be a part of that. And, and we're really proud to kind of take that into a new generation. Like we said, some traditional styles, we like to focus on making sure there is something for the person who comes in and says, what do you have? It's like a Bud Light because realistically, Anheuser-Busch has been brewing here for quite a long time. And frankly, we even get a ton of their, their staff 
and their employees and they're looking for something different as well. So we're proud to offer hopefully their gateway beers um, as well as some of the more modern styles and modern twists and doing things our own way to kind of set, set our own path. So uh, it, it's it's an interesting blend of, of history and tradition versus kind of forging our own way and growing Williamsburg into something that's not just colonial focused. That's awesome. Man. I had no idea it was the, that kind of party out there. That's great. I mean, that makes so much more sense. So I feel like as you were talking, I was just even just thinking like it's, it kind of makes so much sense to have the name. It's just like, you know, like it doesn't get more like Virginia Beer Co. is like is perfect being that if the, the, the town has that much brewing history. I mean, that's uh, I've never heard anything like that before. That's fantastic. I love that. Um, so then with that context, you guys relocated your old, you know, college town. You're like, all right, we're going to give ourselves 18 months that turned into three and a half years. You found the space finally. <laughs> was it like a, did you like stumble on it or was it one of these things that you had to like fight for? Like how did the space come about? It was, uh, <clears throat> so we had actually fought for two other spaces for over that time period. So okay. we got like six months into lease negotiations on the first space. Um, they backed out. We got to signing a letter of intent on a new build. The developer backed out. So that had happened. We were kind of like, oh man, is this ever going to happen for us? And then our real real estate guy called us and said, hey, this building's available now. Um, this new building that's you know close to town, come see it. And uh, I think Robbie was out of town, but Jonathan and I, Jonathan's our brewmaster, we walked into the building for the first time and we looked around and we're like, this is it. it's a brewery. Yeah. Um, nice. And what it was, it's a building that was built in 1960 by the telephone company and they serviced their utility trucks out of it. So it is a big cavernous building with open spans. Uh, the floors are already sloped to a big central trench drain, tons nice. of power, tons of water, and it's one and a half miles from the center of town. Um, so it's just like, wow, this is perfect. Uh, and this guy had owned it forever. He kept his old cars in there that he was fixing up just for fun and finally decided he wanted to make some money off it. So uh, it was <laughs> – he was – uh, I know he's not listening, so I can say he's a pain in the ass um, <laughs> to, to negotiate a lease with. But uh, but yeah, so we kind of had to fight for it through the lease process. But um, it was such a weight off our shoulders to finally get to that point and have a building. And you know, the whole time while we're looking for this building, we're trying to raise money, do develop the brand, all these things. And that's hard to do when you literally have nothing to show except some ideas on a piece of paper. Right. Um, but once you have a building, we had our brewmaster, brewing test batches, all that stuff. It became very real, and it became a lot easier to to kind of keep pushing forward and, and getting closer to our goal. Amazing. So then because you guys were doing the home brews, were you like basing – like did you bring Jonathan in and show him a bunch of the ideas from the home brews that you guys had been doing to be like, yeah, we think thinking this, this, and this, and then he took, them, took those and ran with it? Or how did that sort of conversation go? We had a, I think Robbie calls it the most, one, like an awkward first date. We, uh, <laughs> it was an awkward blind date. Awkward blind awkward date. Blind okay. date. Yes. Well, we posted an ad for a brewer. This is back in 2014. So this is before we had the building, obviously. And uh, Jonathan answered it, one of the answers we got. And he was a uh, brewer at Sweetwater Brewing in Atlanta at the time. Wow, okay. And we'd kind of come up with a few thoughts, that, you know, things we wanted in a brewer, which were experience at a big production brewery experience at a small startup brewery and a brewing education. And he literally had all three. He worked at Jackalope Brewing in Nashville when they started up, went to Sweetwater, and then got a, got a brewing degree while he was at Sweetwater. 
Um, so we're like, oh, wow, we got to meet this guy. So we met in Asheville, North Carolina. Nice. Not many better places to meet for, for beer. Yeah. And basically just like hung out for the weekend. Uh, I think like to make sure there's a, there was a fit personally, but also in terms of like a beer philosophy. Mm. So we did bring our philosophy and, and our interest to the, to the table, but, but he also brought his. And I think, you know, the more minds, the better when it comes to thinking how we wanted to, to position our beers and how we wanted to brew beers. And, and we did gel. And I think we, we kind of push him in certain directions and he pushes us in other directions. And, and ever since that weird, awkward blind date, it's, uh, it's been a good match. That's awesome. So why did you guys, uh, did you ever want to do the, you know, to be the brewer yourselves being that that's where this kind of started or was it never really because you hadn't worked in professional breweries before you guys didn't consider yourselves as a, a, a candidate at all? I think, yeah, I, I think, I think we, we both... saw, go for it. Oh, no, well, so we, we both, I think we both saw the, the, the joy that comes from creating a recipe and from executing that recipe from, from grain to glass. Right. Um, but we also both saw the challenges of saying that we're, we're quitting our jobs, you know, fairly successful careers in, in finance, um, to, to pursue this dream. And, and we're trying to take some of the things we learned both in college and in finance to create a business plan and create a business that, that would hopefully not just be built for short-term fun, but for long-term success. And part of that was, was basically looking at each other and looking inward and saying, well, Hey, is one of us going to, after we quit our jobs, try to find a job at a brewery and actually work on scaling up recipes and work on working in a full scale brew house and not just brewing, you know, in a kitchen or in a garage, um, because it's not a, it's not a, a one-to-one ratio scaling up. It's, it's not a garage. It's not a brew house. You know, we, we realized all those things and we realized that with the time it was taking to find a location, to finalize a business plan, to raise money, to focus on, um, you know, building out an infrastructure for a sustainable business to build a brand, actually, whether it was the the design of you know the logo and the labels for the beers, knowing that we wanted to have brands when we first opened and, and cans and bottles shortly after we opened, you know, all, all of that time, we, we said to ourselves, let's, let's put the right people in the right places to succeed. And we, we didn't have the, the time or the flexibility to, to take a two-year course in, in brewing to, to, you know, take an internship uh, or an apprenticeship at a local brewery and, and learn that part of it. So we studied as much as we could. We homebrewed as much as we could. We joined the Brewers Association. We joined the Virginia Craft Brewers Guild. We put ourselves to the test from a from a, an education standpoint, but realized that at the end of the day, to put the right people in the right places and succeed, we needed to find someone who had brewed at a larger scale than we had, who had worked at a larger brewery than we had, and who could come in and, and challenge us on our on our thoughts about what kind of beers the Virginia beer, beer company should offer. Right. We, we realized too, that we we're not the only two beer drinkers in the world. There are other beer drinkers out there. Let's, let's see what someone else's perspective brings to the table and how that challenges us to hopefully offer a wider variety and a, and a better overall experience. And, and that's, that's what we found in Jonathan. That makes so much sense. And it sounds like it's also like leaning into both of your uh, specialties being, you came from finance, you obviously understand business and, and sort of how that side works. So, like you said, rather than try to figure out something that is going to take literally years for you to get to the level that you need to be, may as well bring in the pros and then just, you know, you both know enough that you can throw ideas at him and not sound like amateur, like 
idiots who don't know shit about beer. Like you're actually, no, 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 well, when we did this and you know what flavor profiles work and kind of what yeasts and what the different malts are and stuff. So you had the perspective. I like that. That's smart. Makes, uh, makes complete sense being that you guys are business dudes and making that type of decision. I love that. And we've, we've, uh, we've naturally gravitated. So we, we, we kind of joke in the brewery. Uh, now we're up to, I think, 18, 19 staff members, which is crazy to think in five years, that's where we are because we were less than 10 when we first opened on day one in 2016. But we've kind of divided the team and, and we kind of joke. It's, a, it's team, team funny versus team money. So there's the, the finance side, the operations side. And then there's the the sales and marketing side, and we, and we all we all have to coexist, and and you know together we we make a, a I think a better better decisions and, and better beer than we would separately. Um, but we it's funny whenever someone new starts after a few weeks, we're like, all right, is this team funny or is this team money? Where is this person going to land? I love it. That could even be the episode name. After yeah. <laughs> um, can, can you can you guess which of us is team funny versus team money? That's the question. Ooh. I feel like you can both fit on either side. I smile less. Does that help? Okay. So you. Okay. So you. So Robbie, you're the you're the funny. I, uh, apparently. Apparently. I, I keep telling everyone that's the case, but I'm not sure anyone believes me. <laughs> hey, it's hard. It's hard to shake it. They can't. Uh, you know. They see that finance degree and they're like, ah, you know. They know what you're thinking. <laughs> um, speaking of that, you guys yeah. want to uh, rock the next one? Yes. Yeah, let's do it. So we have we a true spirit, plethora. Yeah, whichever you want to do. True spirits, the next one. Like, oh. you, you tell me. You guys are in charge. Let's do one of our uh, one of the core beers. Let's do. Yeah. Let's keep it light here. Let's do liquid escape. Liquid escape. Excellent choice. Please grab liquid escape. Thank you. Babe. Tell us about this one. It's a little shortcut. So oh, there it is. Nice. So oh, this beer gorgeous. is actually. Um, so when we opened the brewery, we opened with four kind of core year-round recipes. Okay. And like you mentioned earlier, you kind of, you kind of felt what we're trying to do, which is appeal to beer nerds. Um, I think we do that a lot with our yes. taproom-only releases especially, uh, but also bringing those drinkers that are new to craft beer. And, um, and I think we, we kind of straddle that line pretty well. And our core recipes definitely lean a little bit more towards um, those drinkers that aren't huge craft beer drinkers they might be i mean people who are huge craft beer drinkers love these beers but they are tend to, they tend to be approachable um so liquid escape is actually not one of those first four we okay. have three of the first four core beers we opened with are still core beers today but one of them we switched up and we introduced liquid escape two years ago okay um, and it's it's kind of an interesting beer it, we noticed a gap in our in our core portfolio um so it's what we're actually calling it now these days is a lemongrass ale. Okay. And it's four, 4.4%. And the way it's made is actually, I think what makes it pretty interesting. So it's, uh, our, our brew house is a 30 barrel brew house. Um, but our tanks are 60 barrel tanks. So we brew six and 90 barrel tanks. So we brew sixties and nineties. So a couple turns, two or three turns into the tank. And this is actually, when we brew this, we brew 60 barrel batches and the first turn is sour. Okay. So it's a kettle sour, um, basically a Berliner Weiss. And then the second turn is not soured. Uh, so it's like a, it's like a half sour almost. Okay. Um, and you'll see it listed ale. as a tart ale on there. Yeah. And then okay. I think you'll feel right at home because it has specifically Australian <laughs> sea salt in it. I noticed that. I was going to ask 
what's the deal? I, first of all, this looks amazing. Cheers, Wes. Cheers. Doesn't it smell super tart? No, that the the fact that we blend thirty barrels of sour wort and thirty barrels wow. of non sour wort mm. gives it just like a little touch of tartness. And honestly, you get more of that lemongrass, I think, than anything, and a little bit of salt to dry it out on the back end. So it's like a, I mean, you could probably call it a half goza too type of thing, or just a straight goza. Yeah, it's only half the sour. Yeah, or what? What makes it not a goza? Or is it just like a naming thing? I think just just the half sourness. Honestly, when we like when we send this beer to competitions and stuff, we have no idea what category to enter it in. It's <laughs> okay. kind of a goza. Okay. But if you taste it in the context of other gozas, you're like, oh, this isn't a goza. Mm, um, okay. So it's a it's kind of a hybrid style for sure. Um, blending those the, the different words. Uh, oh, that could be it. But yeah, we 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 actually did taste. Believe it or not. A few different sea salts. Smart though, I'm sure because it contributes to to the why, why the Australian one. Because I I don't even recall there being an Australian sea salt. <laughs> Maybe they didn't call it that. that, that. I it was think like, it, it was back like at home for you, they probably just called it salt. So, <laughs> it's probably it. It's like salt. Like you come over here, it's like Australian, like it's this exotic shit. I'm like, nah, man, it's just stuff you get from the supermarket. Um, I'm sure it's something like special. What's the deal with it? Is it just like a nice, had a nice little. Um, Little, little, like it, it. What's the deal? Honestly, it was like the saltiest of the salts. <laughs> it's the weirdest thing to say. I know, but no, it, I respect they, it. Uh, I respect it. Who knew? I mean, we found a salt supplier that has like fifty different salts. Um, so that's how we landed on it. And then when we when we did land on it, we also liked the fact that it kind of evokes part of what we were going for with the name of the beer itself. Okay. Um, a liquid escape. You know, I think it's it's easy when you hear that to picture like what's your escape. For a lot of people, it's a beach, it's a hike, it's laying in a pool, you know, whatever it might be. Um, we thought kind of contributed to that vibe. It definitely um, – I saw this one today. I was looking at your Instagram and I think the photo I saw was like someone on a boat drinking this or holding it up sort of with, with the water in the background. I was like, oh, yeah, it's so sick. Refreshing as hell. I, I saw the Australian sea salt. I think in that photo, I didn't even see it on this can. It's like interesting. So I was really curious to where that came from, but it definitely screamed. Even just the color, this like teal, like color scheme on there is just super. Like it feels very now. So actually, the, the perfect kind of neck is pretty hot here in Montreal right now. I know you got you guys are next level with the heat. Oh my god, I have never experienced anything <laughs> like that in my life. I don't know how you survived. We went there in July 2019. And the funny part, we were in Jamaica the week before. And Virginia and DC were 10x hotter, like more humid than Jamaica. I never sweat like that in my life. I never felt anything like this overpowering heat. So this is a very necessary product for your uh, your environment. Yeah, I'm a... Uh... I'm a lower alcohol beer guy. Like I said, I like the malt life. I like the lower alcohol. This beer for me, I can drink a six pack. Easy. And I can't do that of almost anything and just enjoy it, you know, and it's refreshing. It's uh, for the heat we have down here. Like you said, it is, uh, it's necessary. Am I boosting or is it, uh, is it like something you get you like, am I making, cause I've obviously never been there before. Didn't realize that's how you guys got down down there. No one told me <laughs> not that it mattered, but I was like, Jesus Christ. And like, or, or is it like something you get used to? Like, is it just shocked me because I'm not from there? 
No, it's horrible. It's <laughs> Robbie. Robbie mentioned that. I mean, like Robbie mentioned that the Jamestown, you know, this, the English settlers landed at Jamestown in 1607. Most of them died because they landed in a swamp. Like that's just what this. We live in a swamp. It's, it's horrible. Swamp. It's so okay. humid all the time. Oh, even through the winter, you get snow there. A little, not much. It's funny how the landscape changes in, in, in the States. Like, it, so I grew up in northern Virginia, about three hours north of here, just, just, just shy of Washington, D.C. Like um, an, another, very, another very famous swamp, Washington, D.C. And, um, <laughs> Different kind, though. You know, <laughs> yes, yeah. So D, uh, northern Virginia, where I grew up, though, we, we got a little more snow, a little less humidity. It's not necessarily in the mountains, just a little farther north, a little higher elevation. Um, and so you come three hours south to Williamsburg and it, it is just, I mean, the humidity, you could, you could, you know, lean on it and on the right day and just <laughs> yes. kind of be stuck in stasis. So we, we always go back and forth because a lot, oftentimes the winters here can, can be very chilly, very frigid, lots of wind without mm. the snow to show for it. And I, now that we're business owners and we're often shoveling our own walks, uh, the snow we don't miss, but, but, you know, wind and cold without snow, it's a little less exciting. Where I grew up is exactly like that. Like it was like I don't know Farron because we're Celsius here in, in, in Australia too so like it gets to like five degrees Celsius which is like I don't know same as here yeah same thing okay you know the conversion is probably like 40s About, 40s Fahrenheit yeah, or 40, something like that yeah, in 40, Melbourne yeah. but there's no real snow and then obviously here in Canada we get shit on it's out of control I didn't grow up with snow <laughs> so if you guys I mean I guess and Chris I've been, I've been very similar like climate in North, um, New England to here we basically have the exact same weather as like Vermont for the most part. So like I can imagine that being a bit of a shock and I definitely align with the miserableness of cold and wind with no, you know, even though snow is not the greatest thing in the world, at least it feels like winter or something, you know, like as opposed to just that you know, wind just killing you in the neck. So, okay. Amazing. So this, this beer is perfect for, uh, for all that. So would you say that on, on the climate note, that a lot of the the, the beers you've been um, releasing are they made for the climate? Like being that obviously a culture is a culture, it's a traditional beer, but something like this is exactly what you would want to drink. Like you said, I can I, I'm not a session with the same person, same type of beer cup of guy either, but I can see why this is such a crushable one. You can keep having these. It's sort of like there's enough flavor, but it's not over the top where you can only take so much of it. So are you guys like considering the the the, te- the what's the word like the just the environment when it comes to what you're making there there is definitely some seasonality to some of some of the beers we release um and i, I think that's true for, for all brewers that you, you're, you're considerate of what what people really want when they come in and you you right. do want to turn them towards different styles and educate their palates the styles and recipes they may not have tried before but at the same time if if you walked into a brewery in Williamsburg and out of 16 taps, 14 were, were dark beers, barrel-aged beers, 10% high-gravity beers, um, you're, you're probably going to get a lot of samples and beer to go, but you might not necessarily have a lot of beer garden consumption taking place. So we, we are considerate of that. We have, Obviously, the Kolsch comes out throughout the year, but but I think more frequently during the warm weather months. Uh, we have a, a wonderful um, fruited Berliner by series that we call our one-night series, and they're all they're all individual fruits um, and focused on kind of the, the area where, where the fruit is, is known to grow from. So one night in Georgia, for example, is a peach Berliner Weiss. And we do release that series throughout the year. But again, um, the, 
I think the bigger push for that series comes out in the warmer months. That said, we do have a year-round oatmeal stout, Elbow Patches. It's one of our best stories. It's our most award-winning beer. Um, and, and we do try to release some darker, some higher-gravity beers, a few barrel-aged offerings throughout the year. In fact, one of the beers I know we sent your way was our uh, Waypost, one of our yes. Waypost variants, which is our um, a- annual anniversary release. And, and that's a 10.4% Imperial Stout uh, with multiple barrel-aged variants. And that, co- that comes out in, in late March for our anniversary. And so that's, you know, it, it might not be... 98 degrees with 100% humidity at that point, but we're starting to lean into warm weather, get out of stout season, and we still release that for our anniversary. So we we try to be playful and, and consider the fact that there are dark beer drinkers throughout the year, there are light beer drinkers throughout the year. Um, but but you know, I think we we do try to make sure that our taps are reflective of hey, if it's 98 degrees for two weeks straight, we better have a few light, refreshing beers on to appeal to the, the masses that are coming in and looking for something to quench their thirst in the beer garden. Love it. Now that's awesome. Then so. When you open, if we take it back to then, what were the we, we talked we sort of touched on it before? I think you said there were four flagship beers that you guys opened with. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yep. What were those bad boys? So um, we opened with see, kind of from light. We opened with uh, a beer called Saving Daylight. It's an American wheat ale with grapefruit peel and orange peel, four point nine percent. That's our uh, to this day our second best selling beer, actually. Nice. Um, we open with a beer called Rhenish Rye. It's a dry hopped amber ale with some rye malt. That's the one that we don't have anymore, and it was a delicious beer. Um, it just uh, was like too many things. You know, dry hopped for an amber person is tough. Rye malt is not familiar to a lot of people, so the people liked it when they tasted it, but I think it kind of scared them away a little bit. That's um, and then, yeah, you know, kind of kind of makes sense. Yeah, but um, you live, you learn. <laughs> uh, we still and we still brew it from time to time uh, and sell it in the tap room because we, it does have a following, right? Um, and I and I will say that then, it, it's it was it's my dad's favorite beer, so he's very proud of a son that helped open a brewery, but he's very disappointed in a son that nixed his favorite <laughs> beer. <laughs> you can't. Maybe you could just have a little homebrew pilot system just for him. Yeah. Keep him right. going. Get that stuck mash with all that rye. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, we have a story about that. Um, oh gosh one of one of our i think it was maybe like what a month two months into opening the brewery we were brewing a 30 barrel batch of rhenish rye and at this at that point in the brewery it was jonathan our brewmaster and then we were the assistants right and uh stuck mash i mean the worst you've ever seen and at like two in the morning we i can't even we were scraping there was there was malt everywhere on the ground like we just had to like literally let it out of the mash tun it was everywhere on the ground we're catching it with tarps it was (laughs) such a nightmare it was the one of the worst nights the worst worst part was not just how long it took it was it was the slowest grain out in history but it was also that at one point the, the hopper that we were dropping the grain into to dump the grain literally fell off the forklift into the dumpster at like one thirty in the morning. And we like, it was just one of those, like everything that could go wrong. The hopper fell in off the forklift. The forklift almost tipped over. We were, you know, using a tarp to try to get all the mash that was coming out, um, the grain that was coming out. And uh, the beer, the beer, the final beer was not Rhenish dry, but it was a, a delicious, um, uh, our version of an American mild ale by the end of, of the, of the, the, the brew day. <laughs> the, Jesus yeah, the extract was so bad that the 6% Rhenish rye became a 4% American mild, but wow. it was good. Hey man, the, that's the creative side. You made it work. 
native. That's right. <laughs> so the Amer- we, American we, model. We called it. We called it. We called it kind intentions. <laughs> was that from the from the uh, evening? Inspired, pretty much. Basically, okay. I love it. So you had those two, and two. Um, those two, and then uh, Freeverse was is our year round IPA, and that is our best selling right? beer by far. Yeah. Yep. Um, sometimes we call our brewery the Freeverse Factory. Uh, it's you know we uh, we were excited about the recipe before we opened, but we never imagined the kind of success it would it would have. And then uh, I think the one that I know is Robbie's favorite and is one is maybe you know it's up there for me too is called Elbow Patches and it's an oatmeal stout. It's a year round oatmeal stout, which is not something you see too often. Six point two percent, but but really drinkable for what it is. Um, okay. So that's yeah. That's those are our four. And so it sounds like all but the uh, amber there is is still kicking around regularly, which is great. Do you that they were positive? Yeah, we, I, I would say that we're we're, we're fairly. I think I think we are. I think we are fairly humble guys, and maybe the fact that we're saying we're not humble, but we we you know try to take everything grateful for everything that comes our way. I, I think that maybe one of one of the more brash things we did was open a brewery after four years of, of attempts with what we called four flagship beers, like on day one, they were on the chalkboard as our flagship beers, even though we had not sold a single drop of beer at that point. So the fact that three of them are still considered flagship beers five years later, we, we do feel like obviously we had something between our, our brewmaster coming up with some interesting recipes and us working together on some interesting branding. Uh, the fact that three of the four are still with us and still our best sellers, I think speaks volumes to the quality of the liquid. Couldn't agree more. I mean, like you can't really call that. It's all you know. On top of that, though, to in your defense with the amber, it's not that the beer isn't great. Like you're saying, it's got a following. It's the tastes have progressed a lot since 2016. Like the last five years have been insane with with the changes in beer compared to any other five year period. So if you know, if it was, if if that hadn't changed that much, I'm sure the amber would be kicking around. You'd be four for four. At least it still comes back there. I like that. Okay, so so you started with that, and then um, so the intention, like you're saying, which I, I really do love, is you know to cater both to to the nerds and also the the noobs, both sides being that also Williamsburg is it a tourist town as such, or it just attracts a lot of tourists because it has a lot of cool stuff that people want to visit to see. It's a tourist. It's a tourist town. It's a tourist town, right? So essentially, you'd be shooting yourself in the foot if you didn't have. Something that's going to appeal that's not going to be as scary to the newer beer drinker just is in town and sees this cool logo. Virginia Beer Company, where else are you going to go? And, you know, it goes in. Okay, I like that. So when and, and we and we uh, we I, I would say we you know we obviously the, the craft beer industry one of the big things that brought us back into the industry was was the camaraderie of the industry how much everyone gets along so I I I, I laughed today because I had a meeting over at their brewery but Billsburg Brewery it's another brewery here over on the Jamestown side and their IPA is literally called Tourist Trap so you know that's that's you, you've got you got to lean into it a little bit hey I'm all for that you know particularly with beer it's the best industry for it so there's like crazy fireworks. It's, uh, today is St. Jean-Baptiste. It's the Quebec national holiday. So, like, there's all sorts of things, like, go nuts. It's, like, all fireworks. And what the hell's going on? Um, okay, amazing. So, when did you guys start to introduce some of the, like, you know, being, I imagine you guys also appreciate these other styles of beer, it sounds like, as much as you would, the, you know, the new trendy hype stuff, or whatever, as, 
as beer nerds tend to do. When did you start introducing the kind of more wild uh, stuff? Because I guess when you opened, if it was March 2016, at least here in Canada, like the, the New England stuff didn't start to kind of kick in until the end of that year. And I know obviously you guys are ahead of the game, so it probably would have been well underway um, at that point. But yeah, what did that look like as far as you introducing these, um, you know, just different type of stuff that kind of more catered to the to, to your personal um, taste a little more? Yeah. Well, one one yeah. of the things that, that – no, go ahead. Go ahead, Chris. I was just going to talk about the brewing, the, the physical brewery a little bit, and then I'll let you take it away. Um, so we had actually, you know, as I said, it was part of our plan. So when we designed our physical brewery, it was actually custom built in Canada. And we not only have a 30-barrel brew house, but we have a five-barrel brew house as well. Nice. Um, Jonathan came from Sweetwater, like we mentioned, and he was brewing on a 330-barrel system there into 1,000-barrel tanks with no <laughs> pilot system. So, okay. you know, if you're familiar with their beers, he, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was brewing the same beers over and over and over, and he would all he could talk about is how boring that was. Right. So we kind of integrated that into our physical plant of like, okay, we want to do this production size system, but we also want to do everything else. Mm. So let's build it to have the best of both worlds, and and I think we took it right off the bat, right, Robbie? Yeah, I mean, we when we opened, we had um, eight different beers on tap, and um, you know, four were our flagship beers, and then four were small batch beers that that we had discussed as a group that Jonathan had worked on um, in terms of offering some variety: a, a double IPA, a hoppy brown ale. We had a smoked porter, and we had a, a saison uh, to kind of round out our opening day lineup. And it, it's funny because with that five barrel system, being able to start brewing just different small small batches, be a little creative. Uh, be a little more exploratory and use the brewery as a test kitchen, having that tap room availability. The end result was we had people who told us straight out of the gate what they loved, what they were looking for, what they wanted to see more of. And that really helped push us to know what to ramp up to the 30 barrel scale and to start double batching and triple batching uh, mm-hmm. down the road. And so I, I'd be lying if I said Freeverse, for example, which is our best selling beer, our India Paleo, our flagship IPA, uh, if, if the recipe today was the exact same Freeverse recipe from five years ago, the Freeverse that we opened with on day one was a delicious beer. We would not have had it on tap if we didn't love it. But it, now, five years later, it, looking back, it was more of a tropical pale ale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we ended up doubling the dry hop, uh, making a few other tweaks as, as we scaled up. But the end result now is that Freeverse is kind of a blend of East Coast, West Coast, uh, and it's it's still more on the hazy side at the end of the day than it was on day one. So we've certainly had to adapt our own brewing and our own releases to kind of fill in line, fall in line with what what modern beer drinkers are looking for. But at the same time, if, if we get feedback that a certain style, a certain recipe has really clicked in the tap room with our audience that's that that's coming in and spending their time with us and getting to know our people and our and our processes and our peers, uh, we do take that seriously. And that's why provisional Kolsch comes back multiple times a year because our, our taproom audience loves that beer. And so it's basically a year round adjacent for us. So we do, we do try to push boundaries and be very educational. Jonathan was actually a teacher. He was an English teacher before he became a brewer. Uh, and he used to always joke that the kids didn't drive him to drink, but they drove him to find another career. So he was a home brewer, professional brewer, changed careers gratefully uh, for us. And so, you know, one of the things that he likes to do with our team and I think the way that he approaches 
brewing and recipe development is to be educational and to be transparent with the, the, the ingredients and what the individual ingredients add to the beer from the yeast to the grain um, to the hops and, and to how and when the hops are actually added to the, the recipe or, or adjuncts for that matter. So as we've expanded our brewing horizons and started to brew the occasional pastry stout, the occasional um, you know imperial sour ale with, with multiple adjuncts, uh, we've had to increase our ability to discuss beer with our patrons, the regulars who've been with us since day one, but also the newbies who come in, you know, for the first time because they're visiting Williamsburg for the first time. So it's been fun to to see our vernacular, our vocabulary change as our rotation has gone up, and we're we're getting close to you know a thousand a thousand batches, and every year we're brewing more individual recipes than ever before. So it's great to see the, the rotation and the portfolio grow. That's dope. Have you had to? Like, I love that you were saying that, you know, like the free verse sort of like had morphed over the years. I think that's like the smartest thing a brewery can do. Like, unless there's a specific recipe, like you were also saying that that is so important that that recipe cannot change. But that is much less common than the other way around, which is to let it morph with, with, with the, you know, the tastes of, of your consumers. Have you had to do that um, with many of the beers or is it sort of you? Because it's not that many flagships, I guess, that you wouldn't have had to do it as much. We um, so Freeverse, like Robbie said, has morphed a lot. Um, Elbow Patches, the oatmeal stout, is what it is from day one. We all love it. Doesn't need anything. Um, it's, it's great. Home. But Saving Daylight, the the uh, citrus wheat. So um, the citrus wheat ale um, for its time. You know, back in we developed that recipe in 2013. 2014, it was 2014, I guess, 2013, um, using grapefruit peel. And no one was using grapefruit peel at that time. Right. And then by the time we opened in 2016, everybody was using grapefruit and everything. <laughs> um, so, so that recipe's done really well, but actually we're looking at it now um, because tastes have changed. And an American wheat ale with grapefruit peel and orange peel and whole cone centennial hops in 2016 does not have the same appeal at, in 2021. So we do a lot of that. Um, you mentioned New England IPAs. Like that kind of started for us in the summer of 2016. We started brewing our first one. We had opened in March. Um, we kind of morphed in that direction. We brought in some new yeast strains that that are better for those styles. Um, started dry hopping more heavily. All the things you know about. Um, and we brew so many beers now. Every year, we're on track for 140 can releases in 2021. Right now, we did 125 last year. Um, beyond our core beers, that uh, that we have tons of opportunities to experiment and advance our processes and our ingredients and all those things. So um, that's one of the really fun things about it. I think our brewers enjoy it. We enjoy it as consumers. We enjoy it in terms of coming up with new ideas and, you know, okay, we're brewing another New England IPA. Obviously, we brew a ton of them because they sell really well. How do we make it different? You know, mm-hmm. what's new? What's exciting? What has anyone heard about? New hop varieties? dip hopping, whatever you might want to talk about, you know, it's like, let's try some new things. We have, we have 12 more can releases this month anyway. So let's, we might as well make it interesting and exciting. How many cans do you drop per week? About three, 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 okay. right now, three to four. And does that include, um, uh, flagships or is like some, sometimes one's a flagship? No, over and above flagships are always, <sighs> always there. So three or four every single yeah, week. We, Yes, it is uh, exhausting. Okay. <laughs> I feel like Canada doesn't do that as much as you guys do. You guys have really nailed that. Like, when I say you guys in the United States, you guys are like 
insane with the with, with the releases. It's it's a lot. I can imagine as business owners and trying to manage all of that. It sounds like though you're doing like some of the same ones, maybe like a three four times across the year. Is that if you had 140 yeah. this year, that means some of them are repeated. Not many, to be honest. No, um, okay. there are like maybe like five that we that we all love and and Keep that makes sense to do. Yeah, there's a couple English style beers that we bring back, um, and they they tend to be lighter ones. A couple IPAs too that that really really hit that people okay. love. Um, but generally, the bulk of them are are new recipes, new names, new label designs. Um, people don't think about that. So yeah. Part of the game, new photos for social media, you know, you let people know about everything. Yeah, that's a lot. I, I, yeah. I, I wasn't like, I like it when um, there's the same, you know, say, like you said, like frames, people really like this one, you bring it back and it's not always there. And maybe, you know, you go one month and you come back in two months' time, you're like, oh, they got this again. Like, you know, that's, it keeps it fun. There's like a sense of familiarity, but also enough of a scarcity that people come back and then it also, I, I feel like one of the, and I'd be curious to see what you guys think, like obviously producing that many new, new beers every week is you know, stressful and, and it's, it's a lot to, to manage and map out. Does it, like, is there something to be said about these sort of, you know, those five or so beers or whatever, maybe more that you would bring back regularly? You can tweak and sort of perfect that recipe. Whereas these new ones, you just kind of like, it's all a new recipe. It's the first time, I would say arguably more often than not, it's probably one and done, um, which is absolutely everywhere across the industry. It's completely standard. Like, do you have any thoughts between those ones that come back and is there some merit to being able to tweak a recipe that's become a bit of a fan fave versus the complete creative experimental, um, you know, canvas to just do whatever you want. And sometimes it'll hit, sometimes it won't is what it is. Like, do you have any thoughts on sort of the, how you feel about either side there? I mean, I think I think a big part of it for us is is you know the it's the fan service, right? So it's it's listening to our to our audience. So to our we have a, a social club we call our full time friends social club. It's a, it's similar to a mug club, right? They're they are our most our most ardent supporters, and so you know, what they're telling us in terms of you know even provisional Kolsch when it had the regular hops changes. You know, if some if someone told us repeatedly how much they liked a certain batch, we would try to say, take stock of that. Um, you know, so there's the listening side of it, listening to our audience. I mean, to an extent, you know, certainly looking at, um, you know, ratings on Beer Advocate untapped, but we don't we don't let the ratings specifically guide us because, at the you know, honestly, a flag a flagship beer that's readily available, and we are proud to try to make really excellent beer be readily available at a, at a reasonable price point. You know, we make almost no money on cans of Freever specifically based on you know, the, at the, the dry hopping ratio and the cost of the packaging. But the goal is to make a really good dry hopped beer like Freeverse available to a wider audience so that they hopefully get hooked on, you know, dry hops, hazy IPAs, and specifically our dry hopped hazy IPAs and come find us, right? So there's there's the, the listening side of it. There's, there's the reach side of it. And then for our brewers, there's a big part of that too is, Letting them be a little more experimental and creative. If they if they want to tweak something, um, it's not just Jonathan. Now we've got you know, AJ and Brad working on recipe development and creating their own recipes and adding to our rotation. And then they're getting feedback and, and both from Jonathan as a more experienced brewer, but also from the people who are trying the beers and the friends of theirs who are excited to try their recipes and give them feedback on what they'd like to see different or what like that they would like to see more of. So um, 
we pride ourselves in a lot of group think. We try to get our taproom manager, our director of sales, our brewers, our taproom staff involved in, in the naming and the recipe development and providing feedback and uh, making sure that we're, we're looking at every single angle so that we're offering, you know, the, the best variety and the, the best possible, um, you know, uh, liquid, but but also experience we can in the, in the tap room. That's dope. I love it, man. The uh, As you were sort of talking, I was thinking when you mentioned about Freeverse, you know, you're not making much money on that. I was thinking, what's the distro like? Are you guys selling? I imagine that you're not just selling out of the tap room that you have uh, statewide distro. I know every single state in the country and even up here, it, it works completely different every single place. Um, what's your situation? So if people are in Virginia, maybe they're not in Williamsburg, are people able to get your stuff? Like where are you at around the state and beyond, by the way? Yeah, we, um, so we, we took this nice and slow too. So we started out just selling beer in, in our region, kind of down here by the Atlantic Ocean on the eastern side of the state. Now we added Richmond, which is in the center of the state, the capital region, two years in. And then last year we opened up Northern Virginia, so kind of the suburbs outside D.C. And then we this year we added Western Virginia. So we're just about statewide now. There's a tiny little piece uh, on the ocean that where we don't sell beer, just a separate territory with a separate distributor. But one day we will. Um, so our beers are available in you know, grocery, convenience, restaurants, bars, gourmet shops, all those kind of places across the state pretty much. And then beyond Virginia, we actually sell beer in New York State um, nice. through a distributor based in New York City. Um, and then even further afield is uh, export. And we've been exporters for, I think, three years now. Okay. Um, it was part of our original business plan. So we sell beer in uh, South Korea, Japan, uh, the UK, France, uh, the Netherlands. Jesus. Missing anything, Robbie? Is that it? Uh, some drops, drops in New Zealand. Hey. Oh, drops in New Zealand, right? New Zealand has an amazing yeah. beer scene, I'm told. Um, that's pretty cool, man. That you guys are getting out there, like statewide and then international, all those places. I mean, that's exciting. And it's 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 pretty funny because we'll, we will get some, uh, which is which is great. We'll get some angry folks in like Maryland or the Eastern Shore of Virginia say, "How do you have beer stocked in Japan readily, but you cannot get beer?" 50 miles east of where you brew the product. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a weird market, but that's, that's how complicated the, the domestic distribution laws can be. Some of the logistics of, especially locally, like once, once we get Freeverse again, trying to make it, you know, a a gateway beer, we want, we want Freeverse to be a go-to IPA, but also that IPA that opens you up to whether you love IPAs or not, that's, that's your go-to IPA. Um, if it hits a grocery store shelf, if it hits a bottle shop shelf, you better be able to replenish that stock. If it's selling, yeah. you know, you're going to lose that shelf space if, if you can't get another six pack on that shelf once the first one's purchased. So it, domestically, especially in Virginia, that, that's a big um, part of our uh, process, our operational process. And, and we've worked to build our sales team. We've got a great director of sales, Michael, who's been with us since day one and he's really worked to learn the market and learn the processes and we've got a couple of other folks now working with him to understand the logistics of some of the bigger chains and some of the smaller chains the draft versus package ratios but in virginia that's a big part of it if we if we can't keep up with the demand we're going to lose the shelf space we're going to lose the taps we're going to lose the following we're trying to build the export side is a little more fun you know working very closely with the commonwealth of virginia um and and they're proud to showcase you know virginia made beers, Virginia grown, um, you know, Virginia grown and, and bread businesses. And so for us, it's a, it's a big, 
focal point to grow our distribution overseas, but to also um, just really get to, get to know those markets and, and to work with our distributors to just figure out what people are looking for. So we, we do send them some of our flagship beers, but a lot of times too, it's it's heavy on the limited stuff because there are you know, the folks in Japan and the UK that are looking for something different every time. So as mm-hmm. we get a following, they want they want variety for sure. Is that a challenge um, to get the beer there? Like, do you cold um, freight it? to get over there? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it's, um, luckily we work with pretty good Mm. importers in those countries and, uh, we are selective in who we work with and cold chain is an important part of that. We, we wanted to export kind of at the end of 2016, early 2017. So we weren't even a year old. Right. And, uh, luckily we got like a gut check from the Commonwealth of Virginia and the people involved in the export programs who kind of sat us down and were like, is your product going to taste the same on a shelf in 7-Eleven in Tokyo as it does in your tap room? And, and, you know, it made us really think like, do we have the lab capabilities or do we have the packaging um, equipment, all the things to make sure that that's true. And we didn't at that time. Um, But we got to that point over the next couple of years on purpose for a lot of reasons. Um, But we still insist on those quality measures so that when people do taste our beer, Halfway across the world, it's how we want it to taste. I love that. I've been um, obviously like I moved here eleven years ago, and I've been back to Australia only like three times. And I wasn't into I was drinking beer there, but I wasn't like hitting brew pubs and stuff. I kind of more discovered it over here. So when I go back there, it's very interesting because most of the places I travel are between you know in the before times before you know Canada and the states. So going back there has been interesting and. One, there's, there's a few like uh, distributors or importers out there from a few like beer bars that I frequent whenever I go back there and I started to meet the people behind them. And they've been bringing a lot of stuff in from the States. As you can imagine, that is, you know, ends up costing an exorbitant amount um, over, over there. But they're used to paying more uh, for everything because it's super far and it is what it is. And I feel like they've got the cold chain stuff, but they keep importing like three-month-old, four-month-old IPAs. Like, funnily enough, the last – one of my good friends runs a – I met him through the podcast, but he owns a brewery out there in Melbourne. And um, whenever I see any of the other bars, if he, I'm sure he's tapped in, but I'm like, yo, make sure you try this. And they brought out some stuff from The Veil recently. And and they did the other half, and they did a whole bunch of stuff like that, and it ends up being like 20 bucks plus a can. And he, he was telling me he had to drain it. because Some of the stuff wasn't – what they thought it was. And I thought it was interesting. This is not on the brewery though. I don't think I think this is on the importer that they're buying. Like, like, I feel like it's going to be, I guess it's kind of a question since you guys are doing it, I'll turn this into a question, but um, I was always like, why are you buying three month old beer and then paying this ridiculous amount of freight to do the cold, cold chain that you mentioned all the way, like air freight cold, which is refrigerated planes is just bonkers to me in the, in and of itself. And then, <laughs> coming from the airport to a cold truck to the space to, to continue that, that coldness, but it's already three months old. And I don't, you know, I feel like we could probably all agree as craft beer nerds here that, you know, three month old IPAs in any format probably aren't optimal. Um, do you know how that works? And do you guys make sure that like, all right, this is going to Japan guys, this is four days old, come grab it. It's fresh as hell because there's going to be delays. It's going to be shipped across. You know, Japan is not close. 
So you've got to get it right across there. Then they've got to get it, blah, blah, blah. That's going to take weeks physically. So by the time people get it, it might be two, three, four weeks old, which is pretty acceptable to get something from that far away. But yeah, how do you just, just kind of for my own curiosity, because I haven't spoken to anybody on the brewery side to see how this works. Like, can you speak to that a little bit, how that, how it goes down? Yeah. And this is a very complicated question. So this is a perfect time to excuse myself for a moment. I'll be right back. Sorry, <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> it's uh, it is logistically challenging for us um, in terms of, in terms of freshness. And a lot of our importers will say, okay, shipments going on, on July 1st. And you know, this is on May 15th. What do you have? And it's like, um, okay. So if it's, a big pastry stout or a really fruited sour that's got some shelf life to it. You know, we'll offer them something that was packaged that's packaging in early June. When it comes to IPAs though, it's like, all right, what do we have in the last 10 days before July 1st, before that shipment's going out? These are your only choices. We don't even offer them anything Anything that's going to be sitting around the brewery. Okay. No, it's right. Because and, and you can't control what happens. Like so, you know, I don't blame the breweries for this because you cannot control what happens to that beer in most cases once it's gone from so your So many dock. variables, man. So many. Yeah. It's tough. It's um yeah. and the, the, the one of the interesting thing is, you know, we, we thought that in, in export we'd go around the world and we'd find some consumers interested in different things. And then we you know, we got to Tokyo and we walk around talking to Japanese craft beer consumers and they're like, Oh no, we just want hazy IPAs. That's all we want. I'm like, oh, really? Like the hardest beer to export is the only yeah. one you really want. <laughs> um, but, it, but that is a little bit market specific. And like, you know, an interesting example I think is South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, still a bottle heavy market. Not really hugely into cans yet, unlike Japan. Um, and our biggest hit there by far is our series of barrel fermented Brett farmhouse ales. Interesting. Um, we would never pick that. And if you, right? And if you ask me what beer I'm dying to export and have sit on a shelf, it's a barrel fermented and barrel aged three year old bread farmhouse ale <laughs> that's only going to get better as it sits there. That's awesome. So, Shouts to South Korea. You know. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Go on. No, I, I, I love that market because we get to send really cool, interesting beers there and, and they really appreciate them. So that's, that's pretty neat. That's dope, man. Yeah, I feel like like even yeah, it's I'm not surprised that everyone wants the haze, right? Like it's you guys invented this stuff. So who doesn't want like it's a treat, like I was saying, like to get obviously we're all fortunate here once again in the before times when the border was we're forty five minutes from the border from Vermont here. It's super close, so we'd go regular every other month type of thing. Um so we're pretty fortunate. But if you're in Australia, you're not getting it. Or or Japan or Korea or whatever, or New Zealand, you're not really getting this type of, you know, American East Coast type, yeah, authentic stuff. The guys that started it, because people want to try it, they would have tried all the local variants, and maybe those brewers traveled to to try it from the source from all the different breweries. But that I can just imagine, it's just because of I think it's just proximity. It's whatever you can't, you know, it, you always want to try the originator. I don't think I've met a single human being that's tried the original Brute IPA from um, Social in, in San Francisco. I went there two years ago. And I messaged them and be like, yo, do you have the Brute? And they go, no. I'm like, I'm in San Francisco. <laughs> this wasn't that long after the Brute IPA pop, yeah. like end of 2019, like not long before everything went to shit. And I didn't have it. I was like, man, really? I just wanted to try it because I'd asked a million brewers and not no one had tried it. So it was like everyone is just 
I was being like, I wanted to know, ah, oh, this is what it is. Okay, so these ones were the closest to what the original idea was. So I think it's that concept where people just want to try it. And, you know, everyone, you guys, like Virginia has a rep. It's an exceptional uh, brewing state and rightly so. So it's, you know, I can understand the excitement for that, but it is very cool that these people uh, in some markets appreciate the shelf stable beers. <laughs> it makes it easier. Um, on that note, shall we uh, move on to the next one? What are you guys thinking? The world is our oyster at this point. Hmm. What's the vibes, boys? So we should, after, after all that discussion, we should probably jump into an India Pale Ale, correct? I'm here for it. I feel like, I kind of feel like we, it now, to be honest. Let's go. Should we go, uh, should we go, what do you think, Chris? Should we go, should we go big? Should we go deadbolt? Should we go? I had my hand on the deadbolt because I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> all right, there it is. Deadbolt? Deadbolt. Here for it. Can you please get deadbolt? Thank you so much. Um, tell us about this one. Is this the double? Oh, it's the double. We're going straight to the double. This We're not even messing around. This is not a and game. And of course, it's it's the one I left in the fridge, so I, I'm going to jump off for one more second to grab that one. I'll be right no back. No problems. All good. This is, more <laughs> Robbie's, this, Robbie's this is more Robbie style beer right here, yeah. Okay. Um, no, this is uh, 9.2? This oh is one of, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. You can, have, you can have some small sips. Yeah, we can. Well, you know, um, it's not going to go to waste. It's not every day you get this stuff, so, you know. This looks, this so looks this great. one Talk in, you know, you asked about beers that actually um, that come back from time to time. This one comes back once a year. Okay. And interestingly enough, the recipe is nothing like what it was on day one, but this was our day one double IPA. Okay. Um, did in name only, really. It's nothing like it was in 2016. Yeah, but uh, 9.2%, uh, two-row wheat, and tons of flaked oats. Um, and then this year it's hopped with Azaka, Citra, Simcoe, and Strata. Strata um, One of the newer hops. Yeah. Yes, it looks gorgeous. So Tiff's just taking the photos as we go because we post it all on when we do the promo for the podcast. And we like to do them as we uh, go because I'm going to drink them. And it's not going to be there to take a pretty photo of. Um, Nine point two. So this is probably on that borderline triple IPA, uh, like kind of kind of vibe there. Um, this was it always this this big from day one. It always yeah. was. Yeah, it was actually. We, we, Robbie, we test batched it in what 2015, 2014? First time. At it least was yeah. nine. It was nine two. Always nine been two. nine two. It kept it the same. So it, it's a big, uh, scary yeah. beer. Um, and the crazy, the crazy thing is, we we have since started offering fruited variants. So uh, every every year for the Deadbolt release, uh, we end up with a fruited variant here. Excuse me. And okay. this is like mango Deadbolt, for example. And because of the additional uh, fermentable sugars, mango Deadbolt still a mm-hmm. double, double IPA by the Deadbolt classification uh, clocks in at ten percent instead of nine point two. Do you does it become a um, uh, triple at that point like what's the definition of triple versus or is it kind of like whatever like it's not that serious no that's we can, we do kind of t- typically we'll do anything above 10 percent as a triple but okay just because the fruit the fruit is what gets it from nine to ten just the extra sugar in that fruit it's the same base Ooh. recipe we okay. can still call it double i respect that that is intense my lord i love it it's an intense beer yeah, it's got. I, I 
I think it's got it, like the tons of that citrus, kind of like orange orange peel yes. from the citra, and, um, but the azaka, the tropicalness from the azaka comes through. Yeah, um, very just little. A, there's like a, a touch, a, a touch of a touch of dank on the back end when it warms up a little bit. Like it's definitely not in your face dank, but like those tropical notes kind of give way to something a little more complex. Yeah, um, and for nine point two percent, I mean it's 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 a it's a full bodied beer, but I. I and this is where, where Chris and I kind of diverge on our on our styles. I, I would rather drink a nine point two percent, you know, beer, a thirteen ounce pour of, of that once or twice for the course of an evening, versus you know twenty ounces of a four percent beer, depending on the situation. So this is this is what I lean into. I, this is the kind of beer I'm like, all right, give me crack me a dead a dead bolt and let's call it a night. I, I completely uh, understand. I feel like there's like definitely two schools of thought. There is something like how, how big is this glass, by the way? Like how many ounces in this? Just that, like 12, 13? I think it's 13. 13? So it's 13. Basically, that's yeah. what you're talking about then, Robbie. This this kind of size, smash a couple of these, you're good to go. Yeah. And we, uh, so we, we, we try to be very careful when we're pouring at the brewery, right? So any beer that's over 8% typically is offered in a 13-ounce pour. Okay. But um, with all of the new can releases we have, we can't always balance how quickly the beer sells out on draft before the, the four packs sell out. So oftentimes we will offer can pours at the brewery. So we have to be very cautious because oftentimes the 13 ounce deadbolt draft pour will give way to a 16 ounce deadbolt can pour. Mm. And we're not going to, you know, throw away the last three ounces. So we, we just have to be careful sometimes so to make sure we warn people, Hey, if you've been drinking deadbolt all week, now it's, you're getting three extra ounces per visit. Mm. So enjoy, but enjoy responsibly. Yeah. And typically, it's the staff reminding reminding me specifically. So I, I'm, you know, I'm there for it. <laughs> hey, sometimes the boss does need a bit of a uh, nudge. Hey, Robbie, calm down. Okay? Nine point two. No, because uh, Chris has had to tell me that shift pints don't start at noon uh, many times. So <laughs> twelve fifty. Twelve fifty. <laughs> no, this is this is super dope. I'm definitely getting. A question for you guys, uh, being that you mentioned it, you mentioned the dankness that comes as it, as it uh, warms up. One of my uh, beer writer friends, who's much more knowledgeable than me at uh, the tasting notes, he always tells me that I seem to be confusing dankness with what he calls overripe fruit, like that real mm. soft, fleshy stone fruit. Which is that either of those things in this, or is this more on that dank? What you would consider dank from the particular what, what, what you lay out of the hot too. I think it's right on that line. That's a I mean it's an interesting point. I think the strata is what is put in is is given that off in the beer for sure. Mm-hmm. That hop, you know, that's also a newer hop, and we started brewing with it last year. And every beer we've done with strata, we all love. It's okay. got it's got like that perfect. It like walks the line of of a, enough dankness without being like a Columbus or. Or something that's just like straight weed, like a Zappa, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. with but with the overripe fruit kind of edge to it. And I think the Azaka probably accentuates that as well with the pineapple mango you typically get from that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's. I mean, it's interesting. I think it does. It walks that line nicely. Yeah, it's, it's and, and and that is that is the amazing thing about the the human palate too, right? Because we it, there's there's both sides of it. There's the power of suggestion. So we can we can write up a a beer description, put it on Untapped, put it on Beer Advocate. Um, and, and, you know, emphasize the pineapple tropical notes, the grapefruit notes, and half the audience will say, oh man, I get so many pineapple tropical grapefruit notes. And the other half of the audience will say, I don't get enough pineapple tropical or grapefruit notes. And that's, 
that's the power of suggestion, right? If you're, if you're going to put totally. that word out there, the scripter out there, half the audience will just go straight forward. The other half's going to push back on it because they, they don't, they're really trying to find it. So we have to be very careful in our descriptors and be very specific in how we describe beers and, and the flavors of hops, because a perfect example, we, we brew a beer every year called keep Virginia beautiful. And it's one of our, uh, like, you know, can releases for a cause, right? So it, it gives back to the Keep Virginia Beautiful organization that's focused on highway cleanup and litter reduction and recycling programs. And it's a 100% mosaic IPA. And mosaic is named aptly because it gives off so many different flavors uh, and aromas. And I, I get straight dank. I almost get like oniony out of it. Um, mm. And and not not specifically out of the beer, but when when you're smelling those hot pellets, you're, you're, that's, that's what I get out of mosaic no matter what crop of mosaic and no matter where it's being used, but you know, batch of keep beautiful that we brewed recently this year was, was way more on the tropical side. Um, you know, a little less dank, I think for, for the, for most people. Um, and, and even for me, who do, I actually don't love mosaic as a hop in general, it was much more palatable. So it just depends on, you know, <laughs> when, when you're, when you're getting that, that first whiff or that first flavor and, and how you, how you, um, perceive the hop because I've always perceived mosaic to be a little too dank for me. And so I, I have to be very careful when I'm dipping into a mosaic IPA. I totally get that. I think the onion things in um, Citra too, if I'm not mistaken, I think those two have that sort of onion and Citra has a weird cat piss thing going on, which is great. It's, it's such a, you know, fascinating plant hops are, hops are incredible, but <clears throat> no, I love that. This, that's a, it's really cool that what you've done with this, um, I kind of I like that it's sort of on that. I feel like I'm getting a little bit of grassiness in there too. Um, not quite herbal, but on that that sort of tasting sort of uh, vibe, which as well it gives it like just a little bit of a. It's not like that super over the top tropical thing because it's got the citrus and that pithiness going on in here. It's a uh, it's super interesting. <clears throat> it's like it's heavy and creamy. This is this is super dope, man. I, I you definitely got to be careful because. If I uh, did this blind, I would not say 9.2%. Jesus. Not even close. We no. uh, <laughs> we named the beer. So we, we actually named – it was called Deadbolt as a test batch two years before we opened. And for one reason, it's because our brewmaster, Jonathan, is a, is a deadhead like a lot of brewers are. Um, loves Grateful Dead. But we also thought it was a perfect name because the, <laughs> we brewed it. We're like, you should just sit on your couch – lock the deadbolt on your door before you start drinking this beer. Cause like who knows what you're, what's going to happen. And, uh, I think it's Keep still, I think it still holds, holds true. And, um, that's fun. Cool. Uh, fun little fact on the label of this beer. I yeah. think we can divulge this, right, Robbie? Can yeah, talk I, think I was, I was going to do the same thing. So go for it. Okay, go. No, you tell the story. Go, go, go. Safe. So I, I, I won't, I won't show the old logo. Um, but, uh, <laughs> The, the name being a Grateful Dead reference, we, we, we had a, a lightning bolt on the original label. And you can see there's, there's a hint of a lightning bolt in this label, but it's only a hint of a yes. lightning bolt for any of the um, powers that be that may be listening from Warner Music on behalf <laughs> of the Grateful Dead. Because um, we never thought that a cease and desist would be something that, that we would receive. We've heard of other breweries receiving it, but because our lightning bolt on our original label was too close to the Grateful Dead's, lightning bolt um order music sent us a very kind letter asking us to stop using that lightning bolt so for a couple of years uh, the, after after that letter came through obviously we acquiesced we who, who are we to uh, to fight to fight the dead um 
we acquiesced and we had a much simpler label that was was frankly a little boring and it wasn't for lack of effort on our part, but it just didn't resonate the same way the original label did. And we, we kind of saw can sales decline a little bit. The beer did incredibly well in the tap room, but sending it to market throughout Virginia, it just didn't resonate the same way. And we actually thought about um, just mixing it all together, maybe taking a year or two off of brewing deadbolts. And then we kind of came up with this label redesign that, that instituted kind of the spirit of the original label without, without coming anywhere close to what got us in trouble the first time. Um, and so far the reaction has been really well received, both internally, the team's been more excited about it and, and the public has also, and I, and I think it was perfect timing coming out of the pandemic because we were able to host our annual Deadbolt Day Party, which features a really awesome uh, Grateful Dead cover band. And they come to the brewery and, you know, everyone just kind of does their, their little hippie shake. And um, we release multiple fruited variants and the food trucks got tons of munchies and it's a great day. Um, and, and this year, was the first year we'd done it in two years. And, and it was, uh, I think, I think our taproom team would say it was overwhelming and, and mostly the right ways, but it was a much bigger turnout than we expected. And obviously very safe and following all of the regulations put in place by, by the state of Virginia and the federal government here. But, but man, it was, uh, it was cool to see that many people in the beer garden again, enjoying, um, rounds of deadbolt. Yeah. When was that recently? Uh, yeah, almost, almost just, just, just less than two weekends ago. Oh shit. Okay. So on that note, actually, that's probably a, a good little pivot there. Um, without, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm pretty bored of talking about COVID stuff on all these podcasts every damn week. Cause I'm sure just as you guys are, but I kind of feel like we have to talk about it being that this is why we're all doing normally I would be there with you guys at the brewery. That's the, the whole point. Right. So we're in a whole different conversation now being that, I mean, even here, we just opened up a couple of weeks back. And we had, we had a curfew for like six months. Like we were like serious, serious. And I know that every, once again, just like with the distribution laws and so on and so forth, every region had their own kind of thing going on. What was it like for you guys sort of going into it? And then sort of what's it looking like now for you guys being that where seemingly in the tail end of it, fingers crossed. <clears throat> Robbie, it's all you while I take a bath and break. <laughs> Touche. Um, you know, so it, it, it was a, you know, quite, quite a trying, you know, call it 15, 16 months. Um, and and it, it, Chris, Chris talks a lot of times, like remembering exactly where we were and what the date was when we registered the name, the Virginia Beer Company LLC, when, when he put in his notice at JP Morgan, when he and his wife walked into their first townhouse in Williamsburg, right? When we walked into the building at, 401 Second Street that would turn into our brewery. So he's, he's got a great mind for that kind of thing. And he and I always you know, kind of joke in kind of a dark way. We remember exactly what day it was in March of last year when we had a management meeting and basically made the decision that we were going to shut down taproom operations, shift to curbside to go only our own little version of brew through. And that was the moment that we had to adjust to social distancing. That was the moment that we had to figure out how a curbside operation would go. We added online ordering for the first time. We added local delivery for the first time. We bumped all of our draft only releases to can releases, which meant, you know, more labeling uh, work and more, more labeling costs, um, huge pivot. Right. And then what to do with, with an empty tap room and empty beer garden for three months and six months, respectively, um, the inside space being closed longer than the outdoor space. So, I mean, for us, um, you know, we, we were proud that we were able to keep hundred percent of our staff employed and full credit goes to 
our brewmaster and our, our, our tap room manager specifically because um, they found really creative ways to keep everyone busy, right? So on the production side, it was, I think, a little more straightforward. We said, all right, we've got to move to more can releases. So that means more time on the canning line. It means more time, um, you know, turning the beers over and, and cleaning the tanks and getting ready for more small batch brews. On the tap room side, obviously, we didn't have a, a tap room and a beer garden to offer. <laughs> and so our tap room manager, Lucy, was really creative in saying, well, we've we have talked for years about how to put a fresh coat of paint in the tap room. We had, we had wanted to bring a muralist in to add a little pop to some of our, our wall space. Uh, we had wanted to redo the floors, both in the front and back of house. We wanted to expand our beer garden. We wanted to add sound panels and ceiling fans and put in touchless sensors and just give the place a deep clean. And it turned out that a lot of our staff members had some of those skills uh, inherently, you know, available. So a couple of folks who were handy woodworkers, a couple of folks who were, who were really artistically inclined, a couple of folks who didn't mind rolling up their sleeves and doing some extra deep cleans, um, you know, during, during what would have been taproom hours. And so the end result was we were actually very easily able to get most people to stick around 40 hours. And that really helped to keep everyone employed. And it also made our space that much more attractive when the time came to slowly reopen the beer garden looked better, felt cleaner, felt bigger, when the tap room reopened, we had brand new art, brand new floors, a, a new bar set up, new merchandise station, uh, better airflow, uh, better sound panels, uh, built an indoor stage for indoor music again, kind of redid the outdoor stage. Music's a big part of what we try to try to do it for the on-premise experience. So it was a lot of pivoting. Um, it was it was a lot of questions about how long that would sustain. Certainly there was some government support for us, but it, the, the whole thing, uh, terrifying. But at the end of the day, you know, as a team, we withstood it. We were better together than we were apart. And so we worked to keep everyone together. And the, and the end result was that we brewed more beers in terms of individual recipes than ever before that hit cans, hit the market. Um, you know, our, our ability to reach wider audiences increased. We are our, our international exports, I think, you know, doubled, if not tripled. Right, Chris? last year. So, I mean, huge, yeah. huge increase in international exports um, and, and just our ability to, to showcase what what kind of um, range of beers we could offer. We were, we were forced to offer a wider range. And so all of a sudden we were you know, doing an anniversary party year four, March 2016 uh, from curbside and trying to make it interesting with, with Freeverse variants and Waypost variants and engaging an audience who couldn't hang out and have a beer with us. Uh, so it made us, I think, I think probably stronger, smarter, um, more nimble, and hopefully we'll carry some of those lessons now that we've pretty much fully reopened. We're still doing some socially distant ordering in the in the tap room. Our has not returned. We have a few regulars who are very upset about that, but otherwise, um, you know, we're, we're we're taking it very slowly, cautiously. We're trying to make sure the staff feels safe as we slowly reopen back to what what should be normal operations here in the next couple of weeks. That is crazy. That is the coolest shit I've ever heard. That you've taken your taproom staff, front of house, who normally would have been laid off of furlough, and been able to get them to do, to use their other skill sets to, hey, look, we can't serve people, but yo, if you can lay floors or if you can do genius. That is incredible because I imagine it saves you money on, on tradespeople in that sense. You don't have to go and get quotes and blah, blah, blah. You just call these people who already have that. Like that is, I've never heard that before. That is impeccable. Well done. And, and, and we were, we were lucky. We had, thank we had kind you. of that sweet spot and, and, and thank you. Yeah, that, we, we, you know, the, 
it, there were a lot of questions about how long we could keep that going. And, and yeah. if we had been a 50 person company, that might not have been the case, but being a 15 person company at that point was kind of the sweet spot to be able to kind of divide and conquer who's got the skill set to do XYZ project, who wants yeah. to work on XYZ project. Let's, let's team together and make it work. And, and every, no, no one said no to any task. Everyone was like, yep, I'll raise my hand. I'll, I'll take that on. And, you know, Chris and I were the ones running deliveries and, um, you know, our, our brewmasters in there cleaning, cleaning tanks early to get ready for a, an extra brew day because we're trying to get another batch going or something. Um, so, it, you know, everyone was nimble. Everyone tried to make it work. And, and you know, we, we were we had our first full team outing in over a year uh, just two days ago um, at Bush Gardens, which is a local, you know, ro- roller coaster theme park just down the street from us in Williamsburg. They're a great account. They serve a ton of our beers. And it had been an annual tradition since opening to take our whole team to Bush Gardens. We couldn't do it last year. So to get 17 of 18 of our team members together at the amusement park and, and sit there and share beers and ride roller coasters. It felt, it felt normal again. That is so cool, man. Just that, that whole, I, I just, I, once again, I've been doing this for 15 months, like virtually talking to breweries from all over like in Australia, States and Canada. And I hadn't heard of anyone doing it that way. So like, congrats, man. That is just, I don't know. I'm so impressed. That is dope as hell. And the fact that you're able to take the people out and be like, yo, thank you, man. And, and you know, bring them back to, some sense of normalcy that, you know, reminds them of what you guys used to do and you haven't been able to do. Like, I don't know. I, I imagine that's kind of why you got into business, that sort of like creativity and ingenuity and just being able to sort of be nimble and just be like, all right, well, we can't do this, guys. We need this. Is anyone, is anyone down? I'm sure they, like you said, they, I was about to ask as you said it, like where people kind of like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. I'm sure they'll just say, yo, I want my job. I obviously, you know, we all need the money here and here's how we can do it. You, I'm sure you guys were like, cool, do you want to do it? Who wants to do it? And that's just so wonderful. Like, it's just, it's so cool that you were able to keep, you know, people employed in a town that uh, there might not have been much else they could do. I don't know how much government assistance was around. Every, once again, every place is different. So, you know, congrats to be, being able to keep all, all 15 plus people, you know, around and, and also make improvements. So now that we're moving into this next phase that hopefully is, a lot more permanent. Uh, unlike it to be, I don't know about you guys, but it's kind of been up and down here, open, close, open, close. Yeah, okay, same as everywhere. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's it's been a lot longer than probably we all thought when it was like in March. I remember we went to Vermont the week before uh, this all happened and people were talking about, my mum in Australia, because they got it first, obviously, because of being the proximity to China. They had it. Mum kept talking about this stuff. I'm like, yeah, whatever, relax, it's fine. And, you know, we happened to be in Vermont. I, I'm happy at least I went to Vermont the, the weekend before and everyone was starting to sanitize hands and, you know, Lysol, the, the counters and, and the, uh, you know, the ATM, the, what do you call it? The the thing where you're paying with the credit card, whatever. Yeah. All that type of thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that thing. Every, they call it something different here. That's all I don't want to say the Canadian name. But the, um, yeah, so I remember seeing that and being like, oh, this is a little weird. And then going to that and, and just making it and being like, oh, this will be two weeks. We had a podcast series running at the time. We had two more interviews planned. They both canceled. And we're like, ah, oh, fuck, okay. Well, I guess we'll see what happens. And then <laughs> 15 months plus later, here we are. But the fact you're able to do that, and I think also for you guys, I imagine it would have been a little more convenient because there were some breweries that didn't have a canning or bottling machine. They were draft only, and that was their business model, and they had to very quickly, you know, mobile canning companies – and 
labeling companies and uh, the actual can aluminium companies must have been bonkers. I heard it was, you know, the wait sometimes was two weeks, went up to eight weeks to be able to get cans printed and, and available. Being that you guys already had that processing, you would have been doing international exports, you would have been doing all across the state and beyond. You were probably positioned pretty well to be able to be like, well, we have our stuff, we have our processes. Like you said, more labeling work, probably needed a few more cans than you needed before, but it was a pretty smoothish process for you guys in comparison to perhaps some other places who weren't as well uh, positioned. Yeah. yeah, we definitely. Um, yeah, I think so. We. we... You want to go? go? No, uh, well, I, 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 I give um, the, the, you know again some a, a bit of serendipity, right? Like we, some of the most boring aspects of of building a brewery, right, are the focus on bettering ourselves from an infrastructure standpoint. I mean, there are some folks who really care about the lab, or some folks who really care about you know, having us custom built a canning line that the folks who care about the decision to, to can our beer. Um, that's the stuff though, that that's not going to get you Instagram. likes. it's not going to get you extra ratings on untapped necessarily. Um, and, and we both with the advice of, of Jonathan coming from a bigger brewery, the advice of the state of Virginia in terms of our export development program um, and just <laughs> talking to other brewers who had bigger facilities than ours, you know, we, you need to invest in the lab. You need to make sure you're not going to send out cans that explode, cans that um, might have a souring agent, an unexpected souring agent. And um, you, you need to make sure that the, the seams on your cans are, are you know, at the, at the, you know, the right level, um, you know, the, the dissolved oxygen levels, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much work there. We invested in a, in a clean in place system. That is the most boring $50,000 investment we ever made when we opened the brewery. Um, but the end result is it, it's, it's you know, cleaner tanks, it's better tasting beer, it's reuse of water and chemicals. Um, and those are the kind of things, again, that don't get you notoriety, but they do help you make better beer. And the fact that we put so much focus on that early on with our team and, and our supporters kind of encouraging us to do so meant that when the pandemic struck, we did have a canning line. And because of our business backgrounds, full credit goes to Chris because he's the one out there working with aluminum manufacturers, can, can providers to make sure we've got a, a, you know, a lifeline to these cans that we already had, you know, the ingredients needed, ready to go for us. We already had the aluminum needed, ready to go for us that we're working with our label makers to get the label sent to us. Um, you know, the, the logistical side is, is not very interesting, but it's something that, that, that Chris in particular and team team money focuses on. And that, that made a big <laughs> difference for the pivot from what was happening before COVID to everything that happened during COVID. And even now coming out of COVID, we're still dealing with, the ramifications of constantly trying to make sure we have enough aluminum, constantly trying to make sure um, that that certain resources aren't going to dramatically change in price or availability. I mean, it's a much more complicated atmosphere now than it was 15 months ago. But um, because of you know, some forward planning and, and listening to advisors and, and brewers bigger than us and um, investing in infrastructure, we, we certainly were able to withstand the storm, I think, a lot better than, than many others were just, just because of, of that kind of foresight. That's awesome. It's good that, it's good that Robbie and I do what we do at the brewery because you just said that it's not very interesting. Logistics, <laughs> inventory, sourcing. Right. I love it. It's like <laughs> my favorite thing to do at the brewery. It's perfect. We do the perfect jobs for our personalities and our interests. It's good. That's awesome. 
it's I feel like it's one thing it was really interesting to me when you were saying earlier on that you know you guys came from the finance background I feel like that's extraordinarily uncommon in beer it's typically someone from who's been in the industry or serious home brewers or although you were both home brewing I feel like beer is what the one industry that people always forget that it's a business and that you know you that's what I noticed the most is that people always like maybe criticize breweries for doing certain things, but just forgetting that it's a business and things cost money and it does have to operate and employ staff and keep things very expensive, uh, you know, um, facilities running multi-million dollar facilities and stuff like that. So it's super cool that you guys are both from that, from that background, but also have this sort of, genuine understanding and, and involvement in beer, whether it's the making of it itself or the other side, like the logistics, that's just as important as as anything else. And then, yeah, it's not sexy or exciting, but it's goddamn important. And, and I guess the last 18 months or 15 months, whatever it is, has, has kind of taught, taught everybody how important that stuff is because maybe there's a lot of places that weren't as forward-thinking, maybe because they just didn't have that, those sort of backgrounds or those type of people around. Yeah, I think we saw that a lot when we thought about opening a brewery is that, you know, it was, it was home brewers or brewers who just made a jump and they had a certain set of skills, but you don't have all the skills. And, and we don't have all the skills either. Like Robbie said earlier, we try to put the people in the places, in the right places that have those skills. Yeah. But, um, you know, I hated my corporate background, but it taught me a lot. And I think the same, Robbie didn't dislike it quite as much as I did. But it taught us so much, and when we thought about opening our brewery, it was like, okay, let's take the best pieces of corporate America, um, the things that we did appreciate, um, the skills we learned, and let's apply those to a a business that, like you said, a lot of people don't always perceive as a business. Mm -hmm. And and hopefully that helps us succeed. And I think it is a a little bit of a kind of back office differentiator for us and um, something that I think has translated pretty well. Oh, over the course of the last five years. I love that. I came from a corporate background. I studied marketing. We own a social media agency. So we have our own, you know, we have employees and we're dealing with that and learning about that. And I came from my work for the big bank in Australia and like colleges and all that type of stuff. So I, I hated my life. I couldn't stand it. That's why I moved over here. I was like, I got tattoos on my neck specifically. Like I can't get hired in that type of job again because I just didn't want, I, I, I detested it. Disqualified yourself. <laughs> right. But that was uh, 10 years ago. And then now it's not that unaccepted <laughs> to be tattooed wherever you have face tats and you probably get a job in the bank. So I'm thinking, like, damn it, didn't work. <laughs> but like, I, I feel like there's definitely lessons that I took from working in corporate, the, the corporate structure and the way that they approach things and then taking that here. And some of our clients, some of the biggest companies in the world in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, and even some of the things that they do are so. It's, it's almost the opposite of what you would think. So like you can take the lessons from the corporate side and bring it to what we're doing now and maybe I can use that for running a podcast or for our other businesses and, and other things. But then you see someone like our clients who are doing tech and then they're going back to the bullshit that maybe a bank would do. Like, you know, meetings about meetings and all that type of thing. So it's, it's an interesting kind of into, into sort of the way that things kind of work together. So it's dope that you guys were able to be in that world, take the best of it, pull it out, and then be able to implement those processes. Or at least even if it's not the processes you're taking, it's the thinking. It's the approach to to creating those processes that you got from there that maybe at the time you're like, oh, this nonsense, all right, cool. But then 
that's really allowed you to thrive in, in, a, in an environment where maybe, you know, beer is a pretty loose industry. People, yeah, whatever, man. It's beer. Yeah, cool, cool. But it's, it's, it's a business. It's cutthroat. There's a lot of... So, can you hear the noise? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I have to ask, how, how, much, how much of this is based on the holiday and how much of it's based on the hockey score? I, I just saw some notifications. I'm like, is it the hockey? Did Montreal win? So they beat Las, the Las Vegas, whatever. So now we're in the Stanley Cup. And this city, like, obviously I'm not from this country, nor this city. These motherfuckers love <laughs> hockey. I have a Toronto Leafs jersey, Maple Leafs jersey. If I, because I was in Toronto first, so I got a Raptors and Leafs, and my friend, my who used to be the co-host of this podcast, from it, he was like, "Bro, when you move to Montreal, I guess if you fucking go for the Habs, we're done. It's over. Like, no problem." So I've never done that. I am. I would. I would probably be murdered if I walked out of this house wearing that dress. <laughs> that's how crazy they are. And we live in an area. There's a big mountain called Montreal, which is where the city's named after. I'm literally right next to it. And there's all these parks right here. We're in a we're in a high rise, so we're looking at the parks. And I have the door open because it's a little warm. Apologies, but uh, I think that they must just be crude because there's also the Euro Cup and there's a French sports bar, right. France French, not Montreal, Quebec French. So when the French team is playing, thank God it's the Euro Cup and it's like it like during the day or as opposed to all night long, and they're just screaming. So they're at this bar. Like I wish it happened during COVID and they wouldn't be there, but they're all screaming and now they've got these people obviously cruising up and down the streets going ah honking and stuff. Like it's entertaining. I can't I kinda of, I can like I can close the door if it's starting to become annoying because I'm realizing No it's no not, no, it's it's fine. It gives it's, us some, it's wonderful. I feel I feel like everyone's cheering for us. Yeah, they're like Virginia Beer Code. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> well, so so I, I, I I've got a I've got a shout out though. So yeah. so so Chris Chris here actually has both um, well Canadian roots and a brother who played for the NHL, including for the uh, Maple Leafs organization. So, oh, yeah. so he's probably been following the score during the whole the whole podcast. Tell the tell the Canadian viewers. I'm sure they would be stoked. Yes, uh, one of my younger brothers is a professional hockey player, and he uh, was drafted by the Chicago Blackhawks and played there for a long time, and then was traded to San Jose, and then was traded from San Jose to Toronto. And played in Toronto for the Leafs for two parts of two seasons, and then for the Marlies, their AHL team for yes. another season. So, do you want to yeah, shout him out? Of, in case a lot of hockey know. in my life. What's that? Do you want to shout him out? Say his name so people know in case they be like, uh, "Yo, Ben Smith." Yep. Oh, Benny. I'll, I'll ask my uh, hockey friends about it because I'm sure they'll know. I know nothing, but I'm sure they will know. This, and this, this is this is Christmas. Let me let me chafe the Leaf fans for a second. He was the he was the cap he was the captain of the Marlies when they won the Calder Cup. Okay, uh, which is the the first championship. Well, besides the Raptors, the first hockey championship in Toronto in a long time since the sixties. Yeah, I guess because the Leafs are. Uh, do you know what was even funny in that context? My friend Scott, who was the co-host, the one who told me I wasn't allowed to go for Habs, literally yesterday. My other, we have a group chat with my other friend who's also named Craig, who's from Toronto, but he lives in San Diego. And he was in Vegas watching the game, uh, the Habs versus the, whatever the Vegas team's called. And he, I was like, oh, I didn't, I don't know shit. So I always just played dumb. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And, and he was like, oh, it's Habs versus, I said something like, go Leafs, because that's how they always say it. <laughs> So then they were like, oh, he knows, no, it's Habs versus L. I'm like, okay, can I say go Habs? And my, uh, Scott said he'd 
disowned me. He's like, the ban is officially lifted. The Leafs have pissed me off too much now. We're done. We're done with the Leafs. So I think the Toronto people are so um, are so scorned by the Leafs that they're like over it. And the Raptors, what was it, two years ago? Winning was like 2019, yeah. Like was the greatest thing that had ever happened. We actually went to the um, – I happened to be in town because we used to go to – every month, my, my girlfriend's from Toronto. My brother still lives there. We lived there first. And it's like five hours from here, five and a half. And we went for the the championship parade and we shot it. We do music too. So we shot a music video in the middle of, there was like 2 million people. In the, I've never seen anything like it before. Like the whole street. It was like, we kind of went in a bit. We're like, oh, this is going to get crazy. And then left. But I just still never seen that many human beings congregated in one place ever. And I can imagine if the Leafs, I think they burned the city down. That's what I'm worried about here. I'm like, if, if the Habs win, <laughs> I guess they have a one for a while, right? Is that, you would know. You guys, it's been a while, yeah. No, it's going to be. Yeah, it's been a while. You should, actually, yeah, you should leave. <laughs> Go where? Fuck. Like, the border. Like, I think they just opened the Ontario border, so maybe we can go to Toronto now. Yeah, I feel like they're going to burn the place down. Do you know who they're going to be playing then? So it's Montreal versus. No, the, uh, the other series is tied three to three. So it's oh, so the they got one more. The, uh, yeah, Lightning Tampa and. Tampa Bay. Who's the other team in the. Uh, T- Tampa Bay versus. I can't think of it. Uh, Do they? Oh, oh, oh uh, it's it's New York, New York Rangers, Islanders, Islanders. Do they have a chance in hell? Montreal. Well, it's it's three three. The, the oh, oh I, I, Montreal. I actually think is the best team of the three remaining. So I think Montreal will probably. Well, oh. I don't want to be that person. That I, I don't want people to come to Williamsburg and, and shake their finger at me for drinking. drinking <laughs> so, uh, I'll, I'll leave I it at that. Will. But I, I, I do think Montreal is the more talented team of the three. So they're going to lunch. Okay. And if they're this excited now for getting into the Stanley Cup, oh my gosh, this is going to be an interesting week. How, when when does Stanley, I guess it, it could be over the next one week, two weeks, or are they pretty, what are they like? Is it like basketball? Where they uh, usually, so yeah, it'll probably, if, if, if I think game seven is tomorrow, so Friday, so it'll probably be Sunday or Monday. Give them, give them a, a few days off, maybe maybe Monday, Tuesday. And then they play every Give them a few day. days off to get settled, get, get um, you know, practice, skate in, and then. And then get going. I don't know why I'm saying all this. Chris, Chris would know. <laughs> his, brother, his brother actually won a Stanley Cup with the Chicago Blackhawks, so he, he has much more familiarity with this than I am. I'm. I've gleaned most of my hockey knowledge from from Chris and his family. Right. I imagine that – I wish I was a hockey fan because I feel like I don't appreciate that, the the level of that. I feel like some uh, hockey friends might be mad at me. Be like, yo, why aren't you asking this? I don't fucking know. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's all cool. good. No, well, it's, you, it, was, it was fun. It's cool. Like the, the hockey fans seem to be – I kind of feel like I missed out on the uh, – you know, where we grew up was, wasn't a thing. And, and people even give me shit for calling it ice hockey. I'm not allowed to call it ice it's hockey. Fine. Well, there's two different types. In Australia, there's field hockey, and that's an Olympic sport. They play that, and they made us play it in school. So I don't know. There's a difference. So, like, it's, uh, it, it is very funny. I've never seen this level of um, passion for anything ever. Like, man, I wish they cared about, like, about the potholes in the roads as much as they care about hockey. Jesus Christ. Be a little easier to drive around. Well, well. Chris, Chris does have an active Canadian passport, so if you need him to come up and, and hang out during uh, the Stanley Cup and translate everything, he's happy to do so. Come through, man. Like It's a, it's a good time. I think uh, I just saw they're announcing the border opening. Oh, if you've got a passport, you're fine. You, they're not even gonna, they're going to probably waive the, the quarantine and stuff soon or something, I think I saw. So come hang out. Have you guys been able to travel? I guess you probably haven't gone anywhere like the rest of us. Um, 
in the last year and stuff? Or have you been able to travel locally or anything? No? Stay put? No. It's kind of disappointing. We do, you know, we talked about export a little bit. We do a lot of export travel, which is really fun. Right. And, and obviously uh, that came to an abrupt halt. Yeah. So right, right before the pandemic, we were in Italy, um, northern Italy, and then we were in London at the beginning of March uh, last year for a big beer festival, you know, with thousands of people, no one washing their hands. Of course, no, um, no masks, spitting in the air, sharing right, glass no. I know the vibes. Uh, so it's, so, I mean, we love doing that stuff. It's kind of yeah. sad that we've missed, uh, we've missed out on that. So we're looking forward to getting back to it soon. Let's hope. Yeah. I kind of, um, it was funny in Australia cause they, they knocked it. They didn't have a vaccine and they knocked out COVID in, I think September last year. Whatever. I don't, I don't know what they did. I don't know, but it always kind of annoyed me. I'm like, why is not, why are the politicians getting on the phone to the Australian prime minister? I'm like, yo, what did you do? Let's do this. Cause there's something else to this over and above. There's multiple fixes. I don't think there's any one fix. Obviously, there rarely is to a problem. So what did they do? And um, I was talking to my friend maybe a month ago, and she wasn't a craft beer person. She got this boyfriend who isn't a craft beer, and now she's all about it. And she was sending me all these photos from a craft beer festival, thousands of people indoors, like large function, you know, those 40-foot ceiling trade centers, but thousands of people. And I was like, man, this is actually pissing me off now like, you guys are out here just living your life doing this stuff and we're sitting out here out there we left these four walls and you know this time yeah we uh our last we sent a shipment to new zealand in last november for um the beer festival, festival. <laughs> that's yeah. apparently amazing i've heard about that yeah so they were like are you guys you guys are you coming? uh are you coming we're like dude yeah. you won't let us you in. know come on <laughs> Come on, who? To be honest, <laughs> it's very far. Would you want to be on a plane for even to New Zealand? It's twelve hours from the West Coast, say like LA to Auckland. Say that's twelve hours straight wearing a mask. Like, I don't, I don't know if I'd want to do that. I'm all, I'm cool with masks, but it gives you a sore throat after a while, and your ears start to <laughs> like. Do you really want to wear that? I don't know. I don't know if I could do it. Well, we, we've talked about investing in infrastructure. I feel like our next investment is in net jets or something. We need we need some private air travel to, to get yes. us to these international festivals we've we've missed. So, <laughs> luckily, I'm not in charge of the finances. So, you know, probably falling on deaf ears here. That's but the funny side. I'm just throwing that out there as a next <laughs> you know, lab canning line private, private jets. Always the way. Yeah. Yes, there is. We could we could. Fl- we could fly places for the next month and then we'll close our brewery because we'll have no money left. So it's a great suggestion. <laughs> That's team money. I will, I, I will meet you in the middle and I, I will say, how about, a, how about a blimp? Open air. It must be, it must be less expensive than a jet. So much slower, but, but less expensive. Significantly. It might take like three weeks to get. It's like a boat <laughs> to get to New Zealand, but it's worth it. Comfortable. Yeah, it's, um, there is a company that I think I heard about through like Jay-Z owned it or did something. And it was like a private jet company that was selling spare seats on <laughs> private jet. So like you could split it with other people. So it wasn't this exorbitant price. It probably came to the same as maybe um, like our first class ticket or something like that. I don't remember the name, but it's, it's like in like a non Uber. I was about to say Uber. That's not an accurate. Maybe an Airbnb where everyone kind of splits the private jet and there's like, you get these many seats and stuff. 
It's the middle ground, guys. You know, middle ground. <laughs> it is a middle ground, but but not compared to what we usually do, which is fly in the last row of the plane on the cheapest yeah. flight we can find. Uh, that's what I did too. God, it was hell. I hate the back of the plane. <laughs> So, so I, I'm, I'm very fortunate, though, because I, I didn't spend a lot of time growing up, going overseas to Canada from Northern Virginia once in a while to Toronto, Niagara Falls. But but you know, Chris is a very experienced world traveler. He's got family all over the world. Um, so the first time we went to London together, I, I had actually been to London a couple of times, but he was like, all right, we're going to we're going to wait. We're going to hawk over these these two seats in the back row. There, it should be three seats in this row, but it's only two because it's the very last row. So we can spread out a little bit. And lo and behold, every time we've gone to the UK since then together, we've always had those two seats specifically in the back. And it's it's been a life it's been a life changer for me because I'm like that those are the two seats you travel in when you travel coach to the UK. And it's the closest thing to real comfort, I guess. It's quite ro- it's quite romantic, is what it is. <laughs> the two I, of us. I always feel like I don't know if you guys are good flyers. I'm not a flying fan in any shape or form. I deal with it to get because traveling is more important than the fear, but I don't like it. And I always find that the, 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 those back seats are like, you know, because if, if you think about how a plane, everyone always says you're supposed to be near the wing to get the minimum bump because I can't stand turbulence. There's nothing worse. I hate it. But I guess it's worth the turbulence. You guys are just like, whatever, thugging it out. Best seats on the yep. plane. Worth it. The nice, the nice thing with those international flights is uh, you can keep asking for small bottles of gin and uh, they don't say no. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, and the food. Yeah, yeah. Give you all the booze you want. Yeah, it, I, uh, it helps. It I, helps with the equilibrium for a few hours, and then when you get off the plane, not so much. But during the travel, you know, a gin and tonic times three doesn't 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 hurt. Knocks you out. So, so we do this beer festival in London. Uh, it, it has been every February traditionally, early March, and um, it's exhausting. It's I think three days, two sessions a day. From like we get there at like eleven a.m. and it goes till one a.m. Jesus. Just nonstop on your feet. It's great fun, but it's exhausting. Wow. So the I think it was a couple of years ago. We flew home, and I sat down on the plane and fell asleep. The only times I woke up were when Robbie was ordering me drinks. On in addition to his, <laughs> his drink, despite the fact that I had been asleep for four and a half hours and was going straight back to sleep, as he continued ordering me drinks for himself. That's a, that's a that's a that's a smart man. That's a good <laughs> that's how you do it. I, w- I wanted to make sure we got the value for the flight. Hey, <laughs> that's fair. You're paying for those drinks somehow. You're gonna get them. Oh, I love it. I kind of miss all that. Sometimes I think like, do I miss it? But I feel like when we get back to it, you'd be like, oh yeah, this is uh, this is awesome. Like that sort yeah. of the environment because beer festivals on for you guys. You're working. You're talking to people, your industry. We go as media, so we have to document stuff. And you're seeing people, you got to talk to people. We have to make sure we take the photos and get this video and do this vlog, blah, blah, blah. So I always find them enjoyable, but it's it's work at the end of the day. It's still work. So I, I feel you. So I've kind of got this mixed memory, really all it is at this point, a memory, of, of what these things used to be. I probably haven't been in two years. I don't know if we went to one last year. Maybe. But... They, uh, I feel like when we get back to them, we might appreciate it again. I imagine they might come back. Maybe they'll come back this summer. Is there anything happening this summer? 
the um on the uh, the international side uh, we we, we know we we're going to run to the washroom while you talk about the BFS. Yeah. yeah. You guys on the international, international side uh, we've discussed the, potentially the return to London but probably won't happen for us this year. year. Um but domestically, I think, I think we, we, we can both, both agree that, that you know, they're, they're popping up faster than we expected, and, and it's, it's, it's now a matter of trying to decide which ones we should actually spend time going to, not because we don't want to be all of them, but because there's, there's so much work to be done to get back to some normalcy that we need to determine how to actually um, divide, divide our time and, and, and re-interact re re with, with, with the, I don't know, the, the largest quantity of your things, if that makes sense. What uh? What beer we need next? My question. I was I was trying to say so. So we have not done dark. I'm not actually encouraging us to crack open a wafers despite me, but that's that's the only dark beer we have. That's the basic share, right? Yeah, wafers. Then we have the sour and the yeah the bread and then the bread. I think one of those three. So, so I think, I think, I think the, well, so the most interesting story is Friends Dorothy, if we want to go that route, that might be worth discussing even when we crack it open. Um, yeah, I'm not going to get The, uh, my, my, uh, the is, maybe, maybe, should we go bottle? Go what? Go bottle? Should we go solar circus? Yeah, we can talk about the other beers and drink some solar circus because it's so interesting. Which one? That's, 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 that's probably a good way to do it. Do we, do, can you, you when, 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 when he gets, gets back, back, you bring, bring up the, uh, the picture from Amir, Amir, Amir. Which one should we get? Which one? Yeah, let's do the bottle. The bottle? Boom. I'll grab it. Let's go. Man, they are losing their minds. Sounds like it. These excitable Quebecois, man, I'll tell you. I, I, I'm, I'm just, just so excited that they love Virginia Beer Company. Beer company now. Yeah, it's I've never seen a response like this before. I really feel like the uh, the Quebecois just embracing Virginia and fireworks for Virginia Beer Company. That's amazing. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that Chris called all of his extended relatives. I think they're mostly in Toronto, but there must be second and third cousins who stretch out. So. so. <laughs> oh, at least I, I feel like. Uh, I'm going to place this in this glass because I have to drink the Virginia beer card from my Virginia beer card glass. Otherwise, that would be uh, a travesty. A travesty, gosh darn it. Um, so speaking of this, this I think I, I heard you say this is uh, this is South Korea's uh, favorite right here. Yes. Recently, oddly enough, featured in GQ magazine in South Korea. No shit. How? Why? Talk to me. That's what uh, that's what we wondered as well. No, just in a, in a beautiful photo in, in, in GQ magazine uh, that our importer sent to us. It's very very nice. Is it echoing? This is. Oh, um, so I haven't got the headphones on. Maybe. Yeah. Am I echoing, or is any of us echoing at all? Or are we all sounding good? No. I think, I think we're better now. I think it's because I unplugged the headphones so I could hear you when I was in the bathroom. I think it kind of had to um, correct itself. Sorry. Continue, boys. I'll just give you a little background on this yeah, beer. So that I think Robbie probably knows more specifics about this blend than I do. But uh, one of our brewmasters kind of passion projects is these barrel fermented and barrel aged uh, Brett farmhouse tails. So Saison base. And then we have a stock of white wine barrels and red wine barrels. And we um, 
started brewing into them back in 2017. Okay. And we brew at different times. We have uh, beer of different ages. So we tend to blend young and old, kind of in the Lambic uh, method. Top of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it, 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 it depends on the blend itself. So they're fully, they're pitched straight from the brew house into the barrel. And okay. in there. They never touch, they don't touch stainless until packaging. Um, okay. Then they're bottle conditioned as well. Um, and this is blend number six that you have in Double front of six. you. Yes, sir. This smells amazing. So there, it's essentially just a Brett farmhouse. There's no fruit. There's no adjuncts. It's just funk and love. Just funk. Yep. And we, um, when we initially brewed into all the barrels, we, I think we used uh, five different Brett strains okay. um, among, among different barrels to get different characteristics out of the red and the white and the different strains. And then um, every time we do a blend, uh, our brewers taste everything out of the barrels and, and choose some barrels to put together. So, Robbie, you probably know more about this particular blend, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's, um, so it's – first of all, Cheers, three, boys. I'm, 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 I'm referencing my notes here Cheers. to make sure I get it right, but it is, it's three different uh, blends. So it's um, two red wine barrels, one white wine barrel, uh, aged between 24, blends aged between 24 and 42 months, making them some of our longest aged blends. And then they're both bottle and keg condition with Brett Brooks. So um, it's multiple Brett strains uh, and it's, it's, kind of a, a labor of love and a test of patience. Right. And I, we, oh. I always laugh because Jonathan, our brewmaster is really passionate about this project. And, and that's one of the reasons that these beers are not actually, they don't, they're not fruited. They don't have any adjuncts added because the whole focus is what Oak and what wild yeast can do for a beer plus, plus time, obviously. Um, but we, we find him over there pulling nails and sampling blends very often, and he's oftentimes like, it's not ready yet. It's not ready yet. And I'm like, are you, are you just looking for excuses to, to, to drink <laughs> these blends on your own and save it all for yourself? Because you can tell when the brewmaster is passionate about something, and he, he tends to the uh, the wine, the oak barrels very, very frequently. So the fact that, it, you know, it, you, you've got um, blends in here that are that are over, you know, two, three years old, um, that it's blended from East Coast and West Coast barrels. We get barrels from the Williamsburg Winery here in Williamsburg. We get barrels from... West Coast California breweries, um, so different oak, different characters. You definitely get some of the some of the wine characteristics. I think one other thing we have to describe is that the the, the oak vessel is, is the most important aspect there. Um, the wine the wine qualities are very subtle, but you do get you know some of the the aromatics of, of a red and a white wine. We've done blends that are exclusively red wine barrels, and they're they're definitely fruitier, they're funkier, they, they've got a little more. Um, kind of robustness to them. We've done hundred percent white wine barrels. They have a little more acidity. They're a little more cider like, but um, mm. these, these beers, the common lineage is basically kind of stone fruit, some oakiness, uh, really dry finish. And, and just, just a hint of funk. It's, it's not meant to be, you know, complete farmhouse um, horse blanket. It's meant to be just a little bit of funk. And, and there are certain words, right. That you have to explain to certain consumers. Right? So, Funk is a word, grassiness, earthiness. You know, there are certain terms that, that certain hops, certain malts, certain yeasts, certain aging techniques create in a beer. Um, and, and if you're going to be prepared to put that word into a description, you better be prepared to describe it when someone is buying the beer from you in person or when someone is commenting on the beer on social media or on tap or beer advocate, et cetera. So um, these are 
mildly funky on purpose in, in part because we're, we're trying to, again, create an experience where people can learn about the process and, and hopefully have a conversation with our staff about, you know, what bread is supposed to do, what wine barrel fermented beers are, are supposed to taste like and, and why why go through all this process why take up surface area to have these wine barrels and, and to make these beers i love it man i'm uh, as you were kind of talking I'm, I'm i once again big props you're untapped uh look at all that information that is <laughs> like i know there's a lot of people who don't like untapped i don't use it for anything else really aside from getting information and just documenting what i've done because i you know, 6,400 plus beers, I forget. So this is fantastic because you got, yeah, you, as you were saying, the red and white barrels between 24 and 42 months. And then bottle and bottle condition with uh, Brett um, and all the different stuff here. It's, it's fantastic. So then all the different blends are different variants of the red and white wine barrels and different things that you, you have there. I love that. That's super cool. This one here, I'm getting that. Um, oh, by the way, it's beer drank came through. He said, what up, what up? What's going on, man? Thank you for checking it out. Um, we Cheers. are live on YouTube. Um, I'm getting that that chewy, what I call like a like a chewy mouthfeel, which I find is a, a fantastic calling card of a well-made uh, barrel-aged beer. There's something about it that sort of like sticks to your mouth afterwards, and I, I love that. I'm getting that a lot here. There's a little bit of that vinous kind of white wine that you kind of get from Nelson Sylvain a little bit which I'm loving. And when you, when you explain it and talk about the red wine, I feel like there's a subtle tannic undertone in there. Unless once again, like you were saying before, like the power of suggestion is real. But uh, as you were saying, like, yeah, get that tannic stuff. I don't know if I'm crazy in there, but if it's red wine, I guess there has to be tannic elements, right? No, there, 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 there absolutely is. And, and the funny thing, we, we typically will keep um, some of these types of beers in what we call our stash corner. And so we'll have bottles and kegs of, of barrel-aged beers, barrel-fermented beers, bread beers. And over time, we will re-release them just for fun. And during the pandemic, we, we went through most of our stash corner. It was one of those things where we're like, let's, let's just kind of give everyone you know, the, the full history of our beers. And, and the original precursor to what we call the Cellar Circus was our barrel fermentation series, the same concept with far fewer wine barrels. And we, I think, I think Jonathan in particular, after tasting the, the barrel fermentation series, wanted to expand the blending, expand the number of yeast strains used. Um, and so we, we stashed a bunch of those barrel fermentation beers and we brought them back. And I, and I, I felt bad at one point. I was behind the bar and someone came in and said, oh, my God, I, I, I've been drinking this barrel fermentation number two. And we're talking about like 2017 original release when are you going to brew that again? And I, I didn't, I, it was so hard to tell him like that, like, that, that blend will literally never happen again because it was the right yeast at the right time and the right barrels and the right place and the right timing of playing the nails and you know, emptying the barrels. And like that, there's no way we could try to recreate the blend, but we will never be able to literally create that exact beer again. It's a one once and done type of thing. And he, he, his his jaw dropped, and obviously I was like, "We're going to keep making Brett beers, though. That we're going to have plenty of these barrel fermentation beers. So keep keep buying them. You might find one similar." But he was just flabbergasted at that's it. You know, that blend was a, an original blend, and it will never be recreated. I think that's a fast. That, that's a great story because I was just telling somebody the other day we got into wine in in Toronto, uh, into Niagara wine, right? Like in the Toronto LCBOs, the, just the, the provincial run liquor stores they bring. All the, uh, the the wines from Niagara, 
And my girlfriend and I at the time, we didn't, you know, we drank a lot of alcohol, was doing the beers, selfie bullshit, and we started to do wine tours. I started to learn about wine, and we found this one winery, and they had this 2009 medium dry Riesling, and it, there was grapes were grown in earth that used to have peaches and nectarines in it. So apparently those flavors were coming through into the wine, into the grapes. So the actual, the wine itself was this most amazing combination of all of those type of fruits that you wouldn't normally find in that. So we were, we bought a bunch and we were drinking it. We found it at the LCBO Wood. And then we went one time and they were out of it. And I called the winery from the LCBO. like, hey, you don't have it here. I went to like the fancy one where they have all the big stuff. And they were like, they were out. And they were like, oh yeah, that's done. Like, and this was probably 2011 or something, 2012. But yeah, it's over. Like I got something in my cellar and the lady at the winery was like, I didn't, I don't, you know. So I went, that, that's it. And I was like, what do you mean that's it? So I feel that guy's pain. Like, I was like, I didn't understand at the time that it's finite, particularly for that year, even 10x with um, wine where that those grapes from that harvest with that amount of sun and wind and rain and blah, blah, blah for that year. And it's the exact same thing. So I think it's probably the hard-learned lesson that a lot of the nerds have to go through when they find out their barrel blend isn't infinite and it's not going to be the same. But that's kind of the fun of it. I get that a lot when we post on social and people are uh, like, oh, where can I get that? And I'll post, I don't know, we have people all over that we cover everywhere, right? Some people, are, if they're based here in Montreal, they'll just cover Quebec, but we cover everywhere. So they'll post something from Virginia, like, and they'll be here in Montreal, like, oh, where can I get that? I'm like, from Virginia, bro. Like, <laughs> you have to go down there. <laughs> I, I think there's like sometimes that little bit of lack of understanding with some folks that, um, you know, it's not always... You know, beer is a regional thing and, and, you know, that's kind of the, the beauty of it, I guess, is that you need to go to that region and that's the, what we had. We had such a wonderful experience in Virginia. I just, I, I can't express I, the, the heat was memorable, but it was kind of like a part of it and, and just everyone was so nice and the beer was, like, I had a bit of an idea that it was fire, but I didn't know it was that good, if I'm honest. I didn't realize it was like, oh, this is like, this needs to be talked about on the same level as New England and stuff. I just really didn't didn't know, and I think that's you know I was super happy to connect with you guys because I had you know I, I, it's not something I aside from that one time a couple of years ago it's not something I've been able to sort of keep in, in touch with and keep on top of, and I think that's like uh, maybe I don't know if we talked about that but the the scene in Virginia like how you know how have you guys been that you've been around for five years I you know and at the time when you guys moved there there was twenty was it twenty breweries. Now it's 250, I think you said. It's about Something 30, yeah. 2030, yeah, I think so. Basically, hardly anything, you know, that's, I was going to say 10x, close to 10x, actually, yeah. Um, yeah. How have you seen everything change from, from 2016 to now? You know, how have you seen the, the way that both in the, the beer scene and the way that um, Virginians are getting into craft beer? Because obviously, there's more people getting into it, being that, you know, close to 10x, 8x growth uh there in in across you know whether it's a town like williamsburg or the you know the larger cities like richmond and so it's like it's it's kind of gone pretty bonkers and you've got this incredible reputation for such impeccable beer across the board um yeah talk about that i'd love to hear from your perspective what's what's been happening there because there's definitely something going on something special happening in Virginia. When you start throwing ratios out there, I know it's a math question, so I'm going to defer to Chris, and I'll be right back. <laughs> I love these segues. You guys are experts. <laughs> you can tell we spent a lot of time together, right? <laughs> I love it. Um, Honestly, this is a fucking no, this is fun. I love it. 
it has a things have changed a lot um, in in terms of like Virginia's stature in craft beer and, and American craft beer specifically. Um, so many new breweries, consumers have changed. Um, people are looking for different things now. I think we've had some specific breweries open up. You you referenced the Vale earlier, so Dave and Matt and crew were opening kind of when we were. Um, so we got to know them, which is cool and fun. And, you know, they kind of changed how people thought of Virginia. Certain breweries like that have have done that. And uh, I think the quality has just gone through the roof. Um, you know, we have so many breweries now it's a, it's a big state. There are a lot of people, um, but everybody's got a kind of got a local brewery, which is cool. You know, when there are 30 breweries before, if there was a brewery two hours from us, where we are right now, they were kind of local to us. And that's just not the case anymore. Um, and that's probably true in most places, but that's that's changed a lot. And uh, I just think I think we're happy to be part of a brewing community. You know, Robbie mentioned the camaraderie um, when we were in the opening process. Everybody was so good to us. Um, you know, our fellow Virginia breweries letting us in. I was volunteering at other breweries. They were helping us with information, suppliers, all that kind of stuff. Um, we got a good ribbing at the Virginia Craft Brewers Guild meeting when we. Uh, the first one after we finally opened, the uh, the president made us stand up and receive a round of applause because they thought we'd never actually open a brewery after four years of trying or whatever it was. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, but but it is a great it is a great brewing community, and uh, I, it's nice to see you know like you mentioned that that Virginia is recognized now, kind of at the top, and I th- I think we are there. We have a so many great um, breweries in this area, in this state, and we're uh, we're pleased to be a part of it. That's for sure. Yeah, man, that's awesome. It's it's just an interesting uh, thing when like one. I feel like when a region is coming up in that way, and I feel like the numbers kind of speak for themselves as far as the volume. And I don't know if there. And I I mean this not even in a joke. Like if there's something in the water, I know like in Vermont they have a really special water table that I was told about. That is why the beers are exceptional up there. And I imagine maybe there's something down there. But there's just like. Like the, the breadth of of um, styles of different types of breweries in every city, it was super wide, and I feel like it doesn't matter what your taste profile is, you're able to get it. Um, like I said, I didn't get to spend enough time in Williamsburg; it was kind of like a drive-through. But you know, I feel like it, from what it, from what you guys have kind of painted the picture, even it doesn't sort of matter what town you go to. There's a ton of breweries. Maybe a ton's not the right word, but there's a bunch of breweries that's going to be able to service the, the needs and, and just um, on like a high, like a world class level, the people come down there and it's sought after. And I think that's a cool thing, and particularly the fact that you guys are just destroyed up in New York, which is extra cool. Because I noticed last time I went to New York, which once again everything was 2019. Um, I remember there being a whole lot of um, Vermont beers all of a sudden in New York and it sounds like now you guys are up there as well like I thought that was like alright New York are probably like alright well, we've got enough of all the stuff around here like let's bring in all you guys and and it seems like it's I, I like that a lot that is, that's super cool I guess you know if there's a market to go into the New York State market is pretty competitive and there's some incredible stuff happening you know whether it's in the five boroughs or sort of beyond there's a lot of uh, a lot of amazing stuff happening so you know the fact that Virginia Beer Co. specifically, which you know, I don't know, like how hard are you can rep the state? Like it's it's perfect, and it's obviously immediately synonymous uh, with the region. People are trying the beers, like Jesus Christ, this stuff is. I mean, we've only had these four beers tonight, and I feel like this is 
would you say this is uh, this is barely scratching the surface on, on what you guys have done? Being that you're doing 140 beers this year, you know, this is giving me an idea from crispy boys to a little bit of like crushable tart ales to a nice powerful double IPA to now to a Brett barrel aged uh, blend. Like I can see the run here pretty well. And I know you have to say we've got, I mean, I'm like if we do that tonight, it's a little dangerous, but like the stout, I want to like soak that up properly and make some content on that. But like, you know, you guys are doing everything. And I feel like it's a, a bit of, it's a nice way to, to be introduced to what you guys are doing. Once again, I'm so enamored with everything that is coming out of the state. You guys are just, this is beautiful. Man. I love it. It's fantastic. And I, and I will say that I think what what's happening around Virginia, around the East Coast, around the United States, around the world, I mean, the, 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 the craft beer revolution is continuing to grow and to change and to, you know, to become more dynamic. And so for us, I mean, it, it definitely puts the the pressure on in a good way to, to be a little more diverse, right? Like we have to be able to, to offer the big boozy smooth double IPA. We have to have the, the fruited colorful sour ales. We've got to have those, those big barrel aged offerings and be able to showcase, Hey, we're aging our beers and makers mark barrel with little Freud casts. And then we've got to have the more intricate Brett beers that take a little more explanation, but they also take a little more time. Um, and it, it, it makes us a more robust brewery. It challenges our brewers to, to you know, continue to educate themselves and to, to grow in their crafts. Um, you know, I, I work on a lot of the social media and the marketing angles, so I have to con- constantly update my vocabulary and make sure that I'm, you know, even though I'm not brewing the beer on a daily basis, that I'm there learning about it and, and trying to understand the chemical, the science part of it, not just the, the finished product. Um, so it, it, it's 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 good for all of us, right? If, if if the brewery up the street in Williamsburg versus the brewery in Richmond versus the brewery in Northern Virginia versus the brewery in Western Virginia are all doing some similar things but doing it in their own ways, then yeah, we we want to have our own unique flavors so that people say, well, I've got to come to Williamsburg to get that flavor. I want to go mm. to the grocery store, the bottle shop in Virginia or in New York that has that beer, so I can try what's happening in Williamsburg because it's it's very specific and unique and it's different than what's happening in the rest of the craft beer world. And so that's a challenge for all of us. And it's something that hopefully makes us continue to brew, you know, 120, 150 styles a year and, and to try different things and find that, that new wave of what craft beer consumers are looking for. I love that, man. I love that. And as you were saying that, I was thinking, I wonder if like, do being that you are called the Virginia beer co, I imagine there's not a better ambassador for craft beer in the state. Have do you guys work with Visit Virginia at all as far as like, do they help to push what you're doing and to sort of use that as a draw card to the state at all? Are you, are you guys connected with them? Yeah, we, we, um, you know, we, we went back and forth for a long time on what to call the brewery and we, we had a number of different names and, and um, there, there was this piece of paper where we had collected so many different potential beer names for the or brewery names, excuse me, for the brewery. And, you know, it was as fanciful as uh, one, one that Chris's mother-in-law suggested, Willie Smith's Magical Elixir is our last name combined. <laughs> and it's something a little, a, little, a little out there, a little Mary Poppins. Um, the Liberty Tree Brewing Company was, was a, final, a finalist for the name. And it was one of those things we kept coming back to the fact that, you know, not, not only were we coming back to Virginia to open a brewery, we wanted something that was broad, that was open, that, that wouldn't define the styles of beer, that wouldn't define the branding of the beers. And we felt like the Virginia Beer Company was in the same vein, powerful, but also kind of an open tablet that we could, that we could you know, write, write our own story. And so it, 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 it I think, you know, took some cojones to, 
to choose the name, the fact that it was available was fortuitous, serendipity, you know, reared again. Um, but the end result has been as we've grown now that we're finally almost statewide, you know, we have been able to really be ambassadors for the for Virginia beer and Virginia brewing. And, and certainly we're not the biggest brewery in Virginia. Certainly um, there are breweries in Virginia that are more well known than us. But in terms of our commitment to positivity, to community, to trying to support the industry as a whole and, and our dedication specifically to uh, export to, to working with the Commonwealth of Virginia to make sure that that Virginia brew beers can be found across not just the Commonwealth but across the world. I think I think that's helped to set us apart a little bit to showcase that we're you know if we're going to take that name we've got to be stalwarts for Virginia beer and we have to we have to really work with the state to make sure that we're you know putting a, a positive foot forward and a quality foot forward to showcase what Virginia beer is all about. Couldn't agree more. I love that. And I'm very uh, partial towards the Magical Elixir name. I like that a lot. <laughs> Did you ever do a beer called Magical Elixir at all? We've talked about a, we talked about a brand extension at some point. Willie Smith's Magical Elixir is coming your way, maybe 2022. <laughs> I feel see. like that could be like your hard seltzer or some shit. That, that's actually a good point. There like, we go. I don't know. It's kind of more interesting than hard seltzer. That's, that's funny. <laughs> But that's just fizzy water. <laughs> this is a magical elixir, bro. That's right. Oh, I like it. I, I'm, I'm not sure the powers that be at the uh, alcohol beverage control would, would approve <laughs> such a, a, a brand, um, but but we could certainly try. You know what? I'm here for it. May I ask, can we take the thumb? My camera is going to die. I'm going to – oh, and it just died. Damn it. Oh. Was, it's okay. I, I, everything's fine. I'm uh, going to have this right here bring everybody back. I was trying to get it with the uh, sharper DSLR lens, but never mind. Let's get, just before I uh, forget, we always do the thumbnail because I need to make that afterwards, and I always take it as a screenshot. We can hold up some cans. No. Represent the magical elixir that is. And I, and I have to point out, and he's going to hate me for it, that it's perfect timing because it is midnight here on the East Coast, which it means is. that it is Mr. Chris Smith's birthday. Oh, shit. I hate my birthday, but I'll, I'll you know what? He I'll does not enjoy his birthday. So. Why are you working on your he birthday? Happy birthday, man. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you very much. You should Appreciate not be it. working. You're out here promoting the company, doing your, I'm uh, sure it's, we're, we're, we're drinking beers got, together. I'm not sure it's working, but you know, well, I got, I got, Oh, hang on a sec. Let's take the photo again. Cause Robbie, you weren't ready. You were not ready. And now it's, uh, it's Chris birthday, right? He's out here. Just celebrate. See, that's what these people are, are cheering for. They're cheering for Virginia Beaker and they're cheering for goddamn Chris's birthday. God damn it. All right. <laughs> Ready? You gorgeous gentleman. That is beautiful. Look at that. That's going on the Christmas card, mate. I love it. Um, I've, I've always said that, that Chris is like a fine, a fine Brett barrel-aged beer. He gets, he gets more beautiful with age. <laughs> better every quarter. I've, I've known Robbie for 17 years. He's never said that to me. <laughs> why, wasn't, hey. why wasn't that in the wedding toast? Yeah. You know what? It just took a few beers, uh, you know, on a little podcast with the, the city of Montreal cheering for your birthday to say that. You know? I will say this might be the best start to my birthday I've ever had. So, Hey, man. Cheers. This is there an honor. I, I didn't – I honestly – we. <laughs> You should have told me. We could have made it another time. I didn't want to take up your bet as long as you're okay with it. It's all good. I love Don't it. Don't worry. I will t- tomorrow. I will live tweet when he tells me 
in, in real time at the brewery, which I'm sure will be something completely different. Yes, please. And just tag me at BAO's podcast, please. I'll keep it. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the birthday plans, man? I hope you're not working. I bet you're going to work because you're hustling. You're going to be working. Oh, we're going to work. You're going to we work. Got, we got plenty of work to do tomorrow. I know the vibes. Know no, the we're, vibes. we're 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 uh, onboarding a brand new point of sale system, which which for team money is probably the best birthday gift we could give Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised. That's it. Yeah, that's that's, that's, that's the next part of the day. A, a couple of management meetings. Uh, uh, you know. Just a large party's festive. coming in, but I, I don't know. I, I did wonder if that large party coming in at 3 p.m. was your was for a birthday celebration that I wasn't invited to. If any, if any of those people are there to see me, I'll freak the fuck out. <laughs> but I'm, I'm obsessed with pizza, so I will okay. be eating pizza tomorrow. That is the only thing I want for my birthday. I'm here for that. You know what? You deserve You deserve all the pizza, God damn it. We, other, we, we actually – we I will, I will say that – that we we brewed recently for the for the second time a, a, a wonderful Italian style pilsner based on one of Chris's favorite Italian pilsners from his travels to Italy um, and, and we named it after our favorite local pizzeria it's a New York style pizzeria we're great friends of ours great supporters of ours Bellissimo Pizza here in Williamsburg the food's awesome people are awesome atmosphere is great and it's it's been so fun because we did a wide release of it this time and it's you know a explaining what an italian style pilsner is and b having it's you know it's a paper plate on the label with one of those checkered napkins is basically what the label is it's kind of a you know local nod but also a really traditional style so that's that's been fun and they, they they're probably the last place in Williamsburg that still has a few cans they've been stockpiling so tomorrow might be a a, a jumbo slice and a, a italian pilsner kind of day oh that sounds like oh, yeah. glorious actually that sounds perfect. I, I think, you know, Robbie, you have your, uh, you know, the stuff pints start at noon. I feel like that rule could probably come in tomorrow for Chris. I mean, we're not going too hard this evening. You know, like I feel like you might be okay tomorrow. I'll be ready for a 5% Italian pills tomorrow at noon. Yeah, that's for sure. That's, that's the attitude. That's the goddamn attitude. <laughs> that's not usually my birthday attitude either. So you no. really turned me around, Craig. Thank you. Hey, man, I'm here for you. Do you know what's even funny? <laughs> Cheers to that. Happy birthday. I'm not a, I don't even like Thank day you. drinking, but I want you to day drink. God damn it. <laughs> I feel like it kind of feels only right. If I owned a brewery and I was going to be working during the day and I liked pizza and Italian pilsners, which I do, not, nothing sounds much better than that. That sounds perfect. It's uh. Yeah, it's actually the beer I've been most excited about that we that we have brewed in the last two years. Hence the multi stuff. Okay, is that something that you guys do regularly, or is it like a sporadic thing? No, we uh, like I said, we were in Italy last February, and lucky enough to meet the creator of the Italian style pilsner, no way. Agostino Arioli. Yep, he created, his... he created Tipo Pills. Okay. Is that an export um, one? I don't know if I've heard of that. I guess it must be. No, you, you can get it in Italy and, and Germany and a couple other places around there, but that's it. But he created Italian style Pilsner. Like that is him. Yeah. And, and we got back and I was like, we have to brew. I mean, and people were starting to brew it anyway. Um, but I was like, we have to do this. Like it is so good. The dry hop with the, with the noble hops just gives it such a different dimension that I love. So we brewed it last summer and then uh, did the wide release like Robbie mentioned. And it's, by far, my favorite beer. I have stockpiled it. The fridge out in the garage here is full of police smell. So <laughs> I'm good. Hey, man, it's awesome that it actually lasts. Like this one beer you can kind of stockpile. 
right? Jesus yeah, I don't stockpile many beers, but that one works. That's a crisp. I can actually see the fireworks in here for once. That is big fireworks, and this is Chris's birthday fireworks. They are fucking losing their minds over you, bro. Well, like like I said, Chris Chris does have a Canadian passport, and we do celebrate Canada Day at the brewery. So why, why would they not celebrate this man? That's what I'm thinking. Do you guys? What do you do for Canada? Day? I should be that's careful. Actually, I should be careful here, but. Ooh, oh, you can. There it is. Oh no, that's my U.S. passport. That's, that's, that's the that's your same U.S. Color. passport. That's, same color. That is, that is not Hold that on. interesting. There he is. There he is. I didn't even have one of those yet. That's awesome. <laughs> well, all right. Well, if if you're going to show off, it's your birthday. What do you have the other two with you as well? I do not actually. That's all I have in front he, of me. The, I don't usually have Chris these passports is, Chris, in front of me. Chris is Chris is the the politest secret agent you'll ever meet. I'm I'm not 100 percent confident what he does on his. Spare time, but he does have four active passports. Are you allowed to do that? Apparently, if you're Chris Smith, you didn't. You didn't used to be, but yes, now you are. Ah, because I, I used to hear that America didn't like even if you had a second passport. Yeah, they'd make you give up your other citizenship if you wanted to keep your U.S. passport, but not anymore. Luckily, that's amazing. See, that's what life's all yeah. about. I think there's nothing more than uh, nothing better than that freedom, freedom of movement, and being an immigrant piece of shit that I am out here. I've never, I've learned that, uh, you know, it's, it's valuable. I've been through hell with immigration. I applied for citizenship. They knocked me, I got my thing sent back because I signed the form. They, the, the immigration opened it one day after the 90 day cutoff from when you sign it to when you send it through. They opened it one day, they sent it back four months later. Then I got to send it all back and go back to the back of the queue, which is now, used to be six months. Now it's two years because of the pandemic. So like the whole immigration i got a whole other story from when i moved here to get immigration it's a whole thing so having multiple passports i have uh developed a a grand appreciation for that so well done that's important well i feel like you should i feel like you deserve the canadian passport far more Thanks, than man. i do so i would very I much <laughs> thank you it would be annoying because whenever we go to america i've got my girlfriend with me and then i always try and put her canadian passport on top because as soon as they see mine, they're like, sir, pull up around the corner. <laughs> so I got to go. You have to pay. I don't know if you know. I have to go in and you have to pay $6 US to get across the border. And it's not the $6 is the problem. It's the, they're always nice to me. If I want, if I want to chill as hell. You go to Detroit. Oh, that's a odd story. They got like AK-47s and they open your trunk and they tear your shit apart. And they just, they, oh, yeah, they are. They are a whole other situation. So the one is yes, the Windsor Detroit crossing is not <laughs> not where you want to cross. No, I learned that. Uh, never do that again. I would definitely cross at a different point. But it's pretty chill in Vermont. They're they're super nice, um, and it's like I would just like to be yes, sir. Continue off you go, as opposed to having to pay the money that they get the the v, the, they give me a three month um, visa waiver thing, and just every time yeah. you support when it finishes, you're supposed to give it to the Canadian side. But like the Canadian people, I'm always really scared because I'm always have too much beer than I'm supposed to have. And then if I get through, I'm not going to be like, oh, the Americans want me to give you this. I'm like, yep, cool, cool, bye. Then I go to the Americans. They're like, hey, why didn't you give this in? I'm like, oh, I don't. it's just like always a whole thing. So I would very much like a Canadian passport for that. It's I hope you right. get it. Thanks, man. It's uh, I feel positive. I did all the right things. I've been through it. But it's, yeah, immigrant people don't understand how – Hectic immigration is. It's a it's a genuine uh, it's a whole thing. It really it really yeah. isn't easy in any any country. People think it's like they just come, they just live there. Like no, it's not uh, not that kind of party. So it's just, just genuinely a privilege to to have that. So it's great you've got that. Uh, 
Have you been to Canada since? Because you could have come when it's closed. They wouldn't have busted your balls about it. No, I have not. Yeah. Do you know what? Probably not worth it. My my family's been stuck in Toronto, but (laughs) hopefully I'll see them soon. When when I say not worth it, I mean the the, the, the quarantine side of things. Oh, yes. No, not at all. Yeah, they make you do... It's interesting. I I heard that we can come there if we flew. Excuse me. The land border's been closed, but we could fly there, walk off the plane, straight to a brewery. If you guys come, no, you you could come here. Robbie, you wouldn't be able to without a Canadian passport because they weren't letting anybody in. But if you could, Chris, but they would make you go to a three-day government hotel that you have to pay for. Yep. That people are catching yep. COVID at because they're not managed yep. super well. And then you got to go to your and they wait for that three-day test to come through. Then yeah, they put you in your house for the 14 days, and the government actually comes to the door and checks if you're uh, yeah. Not leaving. I just. I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if it's worth it. No. Hence why I haven't seen my family since uh, early, yeah, late 2019, I suppose. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's, I hope everything kind of evens out at least soon. They, they did announce, I think, like I said earlier, I think, I think it's July 5th they're opening it up to America. Oh, good. To come, it's about, to come back. It's about time. I don't know if it's the land border or flying in there. I think the land border, they might do that last because it's the easiest way for people to just sort of come. It's actually technically, right. think about it, it's technically safer. I think every the reason why COVID spread in Ontario was that they kept letting international flights come in. And that's how it mm-hmm. ruined Australia. Australia was killing the game. And they went back into lockdown again recently because they let Australians come back from India where they have that crazy variant. And then the variant got loose. Yep. Someone got it from people on the plane, the variant got loose, and they just locked down again which isn't optimal uh, either. They just shut everything down for like two weeks. So like, if you're going in by car, and it's just you and the people in the car that are probably in the same household or something, you'd be able to, this is out of control, I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> like, what is happening? What did I, 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 I really, really sounds like, sounds like fun. It does sound like, right, clearly, you've ne- clearly you've never been to one of Chris's birthday parties. <laughs> I mean, this is obviously. That sounds like a, a plane. Can you hear that? It really, it does. It absolutely does. I think I'm going to close this door because the door is like mostly. Let me just close it real quick because I think this is going to be annoying at this point. One sec. <laughs> are you are you still going running in the morning? That didn't or even really later make, later later this morning. Yeah, that didn't even make a difference really. I can see. I saw really quickly the whole street is just banked up. So maybe they're just. That's probably why they're just like I, the, coming back and just driving and honking. People doing laps and shit. The game ended like an hour ago, <laughs> at least. I've never seen. Honestly, I lived in Montreal coming up on nine years and uh, next month, and I don't recall seeing anything, hearing anything like this. I've been in this place for almost eight years as well, so a, a reasonable amount of time. Haven't seen anything this crazy. I know they love sports and stuff, but god damn, this is, uh, it's definitely funny. I don't even know what sound that is. Like, it sounds like a, like kind of like a plane or some sort of like insane Harley or something. They're, they're wilding for your birthday, bro. Like, I don't know. They're just, they know. I feel, I feel like there are certain areas, though, that, that embody, that a certain sports team embodies the soul of that area, right? Like, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. My, my, my father's family is from Southern Illinois, right outside of Missouri. And I, I have been lucky enough to be in St. Louis 
when they have won the World Series, and it's oh, like wow. the whole city explodes into into revelry. And so, you know, Chris is a Chris is a Yankees fan. I'm sure he feels the same way. If the Yankees win the World Series, that the whole the whole of New York celebrates. You know, maybe maybe even Flushing celebrates just because everyone's excited that you know a New York team has won the World Series. So right. there are certain there are certain cities, there are certain areas that just a, a sports team embodies. You know, all all of you know what everyone's kind of hoping for. I think you're right. And where we are, have you guys been to Montreal? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like I have yeah, yeah okay. So there's the big the mountain. It's not. It's kind of more like a hill, but because we're next to the mountain, it's it's like just north of downtown. Like literally, like I can see downtown from here. The buildings are right next to the mountain, so we're not that far from. I don't know if the game was played here, because if it was played here, that would make sense. And if it's at the Bell Center, that would kind of make I'm sense. Pretty, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it was a home game for the for, for Montreal. That could explain it. Maybe people either went to the game or they're just cruising around downtown listening to the game. I don't know what I don't know what the the rules were with attending or anything like that. But that could um, that could explain it. And where we are, the thoroughfare that's next to my had the main street goes right downtown, like it's one of the main kind of streets. So I imagine that's why. But I just haven't seen anything like this before, and I was just, like it was just funny because yeah, I didn't know there was even a game on tonight. And then all of a sudden, like, all these people yelling and screaming. Like, they kind of wild on that because it's Quebec's National Day. Maybe that's also why, because they're also like, yeah, Quebec, and like, yeah, Canadians. Like, okay. Definitely oh, excited. Right? It's good times. It's, yeah, it's, uh, sounds like fun. It's actually cool because Chris's birthday is really wild. So. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> they, they're losing their minds. They know about Virginia. It's sec- second only to Canada Day. Do you know what's funny? They don't give oh. a flying fuck about Canada Day here. In Quebec, they could not care less. Do you know what's even funny? Fun fact. They have a day called Moving Day. And Moving Day just happens to be July 1st, which is the day that most, and I don't know why this happens, but most leases, ours doesn't, but most leases end July 1st. So people finish their rent and then they'll all be moving. So all the moving trucks are booked six months ahead for July 1st. That's how much they don't care about it. Canada just an ex- <laughs> just an excuse to completely ignore Canada Day. <laughs> Honestly, it really is. It's, it's quite amusing to be honest because we're like obviously I'm agnostic because I'm not from anywhere, and we you know just from from Toronto, so we come here and Canada Day is like the big day. Then this day is the big day, literally exactly one week beforehand, and then next Thursday is the is the Canada Day stuff, which is just moving day. Like everything is closed, all the supermarkets are closed, nothing's open. Next Thursday, business as usual. Hilarious. <laughs> it's like my family's, from Tr- my family's from Toronto, though, so I will be celebrating next Thursday. And you say it right. You're saying it proper. So I, I can tell you're actually from Toronto, so it's good. Not Toronto. <laughs> I like that. I respect Toronto. That. Toronto. I get really mad when people, even I'm not from there, but I'm like, God, come on, man. People go, Jesus Christ. What do you guys do for Canada Day, being that you guys do it? Have you guys ever done like a, do you guys do Canadian? Oh, yeah. Yeah, what do you guys do? Like, you do little, like, like not little, but do you do beer collabs or food or poutine and stuff like that? Like, yeah, we did poutine. We caught a little heat in 2017. We hung a um, Canadian flag, an American flag, and a Canadian flag, but also a joint American and Canadian flag. Or oh, like divided down the middle? Yeah. Just say, yes, yeah. Um, for that. And we, we obviously weren't trying to be rude or, you know. No, of course. We, we had a few. 
we had a few uh, uh, veterans um, who, who basically yeah. said that that was that was tarnishing both flags. So you know, we we told them to take it up with Amazon, but obviously we, we have not hung the flag since. <laughs> I kind of want that flag. It was That's awesome. Yeah, it was. We it can was send it to you because we can never use it again. <laughs> <laughs> it was well intentioned. We have a special relationship, you know. It's yeah. And we, we released a beer called um, Picket Fences. Like you know, good fences make good neighbors. That's great. What kind so, of beer was it? Something with maybe it was a white IPA. Oddly enough, that no one makes anymore. But we just no. decided to do it because we make so many freaking beers a year that we have to make everything. Um. So we're actually releasing that again. I think it's a few days after Canada Day this year, but for the first time since 2016, Big okay. Fences is coming back. But yeah, we did poutine. What else did we do? We did some other Canada Day stuff. I think. Oh, we, we done. We, we did. Uh, we did. We did uh, Trudeau's Treasure, the uh, oh, yeah, right. syrup barrel yeah. aged brown ale. <laughs> how could I forget? Oh, that's awesome. Yo, that's Does anyone crazy. know how to say that? I'm trying to remember. Uh, well, so we, so we, so it's, it's funny though. It's like, we, we will get, um, spirits barrels that have been repurposed then as maple syrup barrels. Right. So it'd be like a, like X rum maple syrup barrel or an X bourbon maple syrup barrel. And we've, we've done a, some of our best releases, mostly dark beers have been out of those barrels and, and trying to explain to people that they were first rum barrels, then maple syrup barrels, then beer barrels, you know, you're, you're imparting a ton of different flavors into that beer, but we did, an imperial oatmeal porter called Banish the Ghost that was ex rum maple syrup barrels, um, and then um, was was breakfast special. Yeah, it was, it was it double breakfast special. Double breakfast special was a breakfast themed beer, uh, maple syrup barrels. But Trudeau's Treasure was an imperial brown ale. Um, it was it was I think it was just maple syrup barrels, right? It, no coffee yeah. added. Right. Yeah, That's but that was a Canada Day celebration like three. I think it was three years ago. That's honestly hilarious, though. Like, that's Luckily, great. Chris, I, and I'm not making this up. Chris, Chris at his desk has a miniature Canadian flag sticking out of his pencil holder. We do have, you know, a Canadian flag. He does. He does have various denim denim outfits. Uh, so <laughs> plenty, of, plenty of ways to celebrate. I bought I bought everybody pins the first year of uh, like a joint American and Canadian flags, like you know, together that, like a president would wear. Or like those ones that have like the crossover where they got one. Each yeah, side. exactly. Yeah, yeah. insist everybody wears those on July first. That's so good. That's really cool, man. Like I didn't know this coming. Did you guys? Like I guess this is perfect. This worked out even better than I thought. As far as like having the the Canada US podcast, this is amazing. Like the, oh, the yeah. connection, like it doesn't happen very often. That's all. It's uh, that's very cool that, it's not, that you guys have already seldom. Like obviously, there's a genuine connection, uh, but that you've been doing cool ass beers. Trudeau's treasure is fucking gold. <laughs> I love that. Idea. Like I, I think you know, and that now that we're talking about it again, we we should do a Trudeau's treasure can because we should Justin Trude- Justin Trudeau's image. I mean, this is it's less political in America than it is in Canada. He's just a beautiful man, so that can yeah, sell like, you can't be very bad. well. Oh yeah, that can sell well even with the ladies. Like even if uh, you know, people. Oh, are, yeah. I think people here seem to be. I, I don't pay enough attention. I'm not gonna lie, but uh, I feel like I see on Twitter they seem to be hot and cold. I feel like yes, doing, it's it's more. That's a dangerous. That's a dangerous game to play if you're in Canada, but in Virginia, now nah, you're you're safe. They'll man. just yeah, they, they have no <laughs> idea. You might as well play it. What do people think? Like like. Being that I imagine there probably isn't a ton of individuals in Williamsburg specifically that have a connection to Canada, you know, 
did I think it's a sort of funny and entertaining or like what's the vibes when people come to the Canada Day events you guys are doing? What do you think? I'm just so full of pride that I, I'm so happy. <laughs> You're just like, yeah, no, it's yeah, no, there's no, there, there are very few Canadians here. Um, okay. I know of like, literally, this is how sad it is. I know of one other like house that flies a Canadian flag. Um, that's how limited it is. I can tell you where to find the Canadian flags in, in Williamsburg, Virginia. But I think people think it's just kind of funny and different because it's never been a thing in Williamsburg, Virginia. I can assure you. No, and, and, and we've, we've done, you know, like in, in like a, you know, I think a positive way in turn, in terms of, especially with, again, with Chris's international background and trying to embrace the backgrounds and interests of our team, you know, we've definitely done Bastille day events, um, you know, we, we've tried to come up with um, just different different ways to embrace, especially where, where, where we're distributing. You know, we've talked about doing a beer specifically for our, our Japanese distributor, um, you know, and, and not without with, with a specific style in mind, but something that might resonate kind of connecting the, the two countries um, mm. to celebrate our, our anniversary with our with our Japanese exporters. So, you know, the, just beer beer is an international phenomenon you know every country has their own history of brewing so you know we can have something as lighthearted as trudeau's treasure and yeah it might just be adding maple syrup to the recipe but um there are ways to kind of you know try to explain to people hey there there are you know, backgrounds that we have that are diverse and kind of worth talking about even if it's kind of with a, a funny connotation and then there's ways to get more involved and actually celebrate with specific styles you know bellissimo is a local reference for us but it's also our, our love of Italian Pilsner, right? Bellissimo, beautiful Italian Pilsner. Um, you know, we're, we're excited to, to showcase that style, even with that local reference. So there's, there's uh, I think we also, we always have multiple layers to what we try to do. It's not just like a one level thing. It's multiple layers, layers multiple levels to try to attract a varied audience. I think that's really cool, man. Because like, if you think about craft beer, the, the focus is typically on local which obviously you're doing, but it's not often that you see people with a genuine international and kind of broader perspective or mentality with the fact exactly what you just said, Robbie, with, you know, making the beer specifically to cater to a Japanese audience to sort of like combine, you know, to, to show them like, hey, we care about this, this audience that we're building over here, so we're going to make a beer that's going to appeal to you that's without our way because obviously you want the American beer but just to show some love, maybe you do your own take on the Japanese lager or something like that. Like, I think that's super cool and, and super rare that, that you guys are both so well-traveled and so sort of, um, you know, looking, looking at the broader picture as far as what you can actually provide, particularly from a brewery that is locked in regionally with the name. Like it's, it couldn't be more regional in the most positive way, but then you have such a large you know, broader perspective that, that's allowing you to sort of, and not even just the perspective, like a genuine understanding, like you guys aren't like just making it up. Like this is for real. Like you guys are out here, you guys are traveling, you guys have family. Like you actually understand the culture. You say Toronto properly. Like it's not, you know, <laughs> it's a small thing, but it's, you know, it, it matters at least to someone here, like being that this is the culture that I'm in now. If you say Toronto, I'm like, oh, you get it. You know what I'm saying? Like there's there's something authentic, genuinely about what the approach that you guys are doing to this. And I think that's phenomenal. I think that's uh, really, really cool. And it's only going to help you guys continue to, to grow. Cool. 
Well, thank well, it's, you. It's, uh, that's, that's very trying to fulfill yeah, Chris's 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 desire of, of one step closer to a uh, collaboration with Alexander Keats, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they suck so much. They so terrible. They maybe <laughs> I can't so even argue with that. When I mean, like, I feel like it should be dope to collab with them to be for for real. But like, they when I really discovered like. That they were one of the I don't know about you guys because you're you're over here, but like when I got into craft beer for real, I thought that's what an indie pale ale was because that's what they called it. And yep. under no my no stretch of the imagination is that an indie pale ale. It's a it, it's it's an abomination and it's offensive. But I really like that <laughs> they. I remember I looked back on you know how Facebook memories comes up and they show you the they send me all my own my, my stream of photos. And I remember like they had these like small batch series of different stuff. I remember liking those, but I was a beta palette back then, so I didn't even know. But you should collaborate. Imagine collab with Moosehead or something. We're gonna blue. We're gonna blue the. We're gonna brew our version of Blue Light. That's it. That's my dream. Labatt Blue Light. <laughs> what are you guys gonna call it? I probably should. I probably shouldn't say that to the Montreal crowd though. Uh. That's okay. They'll, they they understand. I feel like the, the Montreal crowd who are listening to this don't drink in any shape or form and will not be offended. No, I, I do appreciate you saying that, though. I think we, um, like, in terms of how we, like, we, we tend to learn a lot from our export travels and, and trying beer in different markets and meeting breweries in different places. Like, I think it, it broadens our perspective. And, you know, we brew, like, the Bellissimo came out of that. We brew a ton mm-hmm. of English-style beers, and I think we've gotten better at it from talking to traditional or new breweries in the UK. Um, the stuff in Japan, we have a, you know, we, we hang out, we have a nice connection with, with Baird Brewing in Japan. So talking to them and learning about what they do and, and what works in Japan, what's interesting for consumers there, what they like. Um, it's kind of a cool thing and it's different. And um, I think it makes us a much better brewery mm. overall. Yeah, man. I, I just I'm I'm kind of like I I've never seen this before. And like I said, I've we've done a lot of podcasts and I've never seen. A, 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 you know, there's a bunch of breweries that definitely do exports and stuff, but not think of it with that level of um, of care and, and sort of. You know, just this like thoughtfulness about the market that you sort of going into, which I think is really cool. Because people like craft beer is local, and I think that's what the pandemic taught us, right? That that. that nothing matters more than your local crowd because when everything is shut down and and travel is restricted, then all you have is local. And it's like, okay, so you've got to make sure you take care of local. But at the same time, there's sort of like a broader perspective that, I don't know, that that has a a strong value when you're approaching it correctly and with the right sort of mindset and the right, um, I don't know, just like customizing the beers for that or customizing the, like, you know, like learning what the South Korean um, audience wants and then making sure they, they get that, you know, whether it's brewing a specific uh, Brett beer just for that audience, being that they love that stuff and it's super shelf-stable and it's literally the perfect thing you can send and, and things like that. And and the Canadian connection, that, that authenticity, I guess, is what I appreciate about what you guys are saying because there's no pretense, there's no bullshit, it's just... It's straight, like, organic. And, and, and I feel like that people have a pretty strong bullshit media these days and they can, they can determine when, you know, when someone's off meaning it or if it's a marketing gimmick. And I think people don't have a lot of patience for marketing gimmicks. 
these days. Well, some don't. I love a bit of fun, and it's all good. But you know, some if you, if you look at the internet, a lot of people don't really like fun too much. You know, you can't have too much fun with beer, or the police will be at your door, type of thing. But you know, at least you're able to to sort of do that, and, and also, you know, even just with the with the with the Canadian stuff, cool. Maybe the half flag isn't super appealing to people. Cool, lesson learned. But at least you can serve some Canadian food and have this fun little beer and, and just explore another culture that you guys have an authentic, genuine connection to. And, and, and you know, I can't see it like that's dope and that sets you apart in a, in a, in a burgeoning and highly respected craft beer scene like worldwide. Um, that's very nice. That, yeah. Thank I can't you. see that being a, anything but positive, man. This is, this is, this is dope. I'm so impressed. I think no. I feel like it's like, it's like that way because like we never entered export. I, th- I do think sometimes it's like, we need to put beer somewhere. Where should we put it? Mm. And for us, that was never really it. It was more like, we want to do this. Right. We don't need to, we don't have extra beer that needs to be sold. Like we want to do it and we want to do it right. We want to connect with people. And we get that question all the time. When we talk about export. It's like, do you support the market at all? Or do you just like send beer there? It's like, no, no, no. If we can go there and, and meet people and like be a part of it, we're going to be there. Mm. It's just so much more impactful and interesting and fun for us and, and educational for us too. So I, I think maybe yeah. it's the approach to export that's different and, and we're lucky to be able to do it, frankly. It's, it's a, such a fun part of our business. Well, we're lucky. In the, and, there, and there are certain times I think, I think you know, we have a tough time sometimes reflecting on what's worked and what hasn't worked. But, but the export side, I mean, yeah, I, Chris knows better than I, but from a numbers perspective, we're definitely you know one of the largest craft breweries in Virginia that's exporting currently. And then on top of that, we just got fast tracked for a new for a, not a new program, new for us, a program from uh, sponsored by the Commonwealth of Virginia for, for basically promoting export development and encouraging if you're already exporting, like let's let's give you the resources to make sure you can really get out there and really showcase your brand and, and the importance of the interpersonal connection. So obviously during COVID that wasn't possible, but now that we're easing out of COVID, hopefully getting us back on the fast track to, to help support us to get overseas and, and to get to the UK, to get to France, to get to uh, Asia and you know, hopefully to Canada too. I mean, it's something that's funny you talk about like not being able to, to get beer to the eastern part of Virginia as fast as we've gotten beer to Japan. We've actually looked at different aspects of where to send beer in Canada and how to do it. It's actually much more complicated than you'd expect considering the relationship between the two countries. Yes. But um, that's that's the hope is that, that working with the Commonwealth and continuing to devote ourselves to actually spending the time to travel personally and to, to put resources into those relationships, not just to send beer and say, well, it's just another place to send beer hopefully that pays off because hopefully we'll be able to you know, continue to grow those markets and, and showcase how passionate we are about those markets. You're so right, man. There's the, it's very meaningful when the owners take the time to come to a market and, and meet the breweries, meet the, the drinkers, meet the industry, the distributors, the, all, the, all the different players. I, I think that if you guys go to some place, have you guys been to New Zealand to speak to those folks yet? Did you get out there and no, even get there? So obviously Can't I can't wait. No, oh yeah, I love New Zealand. They have the funniest accent ever. It is the greatest <laughs> accent. You might not see the difference immediately, but for me, as for us, because they come to, I can live and work in New Zealand with my passport. Like we can just go between them, right? So there's a lot of Kiwis in Australia, and I went there one time. And we, we, have you seen this YouTube video called Beach Daz? It's like a, a cartoon whale. I'll, I'll send it to you guys afterwards. It's the greatest thing in the world. 
It used to be my text message ringtone. It's like a minute, but it's like this whale. Like, oh, hey, bro. And they talk to this little seagull and they're whatever. But the way they talk is so funny. Um, it's nothing funnier in the world, but they're the loveliest humans ever. And there's something to be said. That beer scene over there is phenomenal and, and in Australia too. And I feel like when – because you guys are the leaders, the global leaders, right? And I think that's what it comes down to. You guys are in, in the States and looked at that. And if you bother to even go to one of these other markets – you're going, the red carpet's going to be rolled out by everyone. They're going to be so happy to, to talk to you and that you guys are there so happy to talk to them. That reciprocity is extraordinarily appreciated be, between the, the countries. And I feel like, the, just like you were saying, Robbie, that, that this is very um, intentional. It's not, uh, where can we send beer? Like, you know, no, no, no. Like, we're going to go here. We're going to talk to you. We're going to make sure that we're all, uh, you know, this is aligning and we're giving you what you need. I can see why you guys are doing well with exports. So there's something, and I, I guess I just, because going back to Australia, when I've seen people say, oh, the dudes from X brewery from the States are coming out to meet everybody and they have this meet and greet and people lose their minds because there's so much that people can learn and you can do these, these collabs. And I think that's dope. And you also are right that the Canadian rules are absurd. Even you're talking about coming from the States to Canada, there's basically no breweries from outside of Quebec and Quebec because the rules here are insane, in out of control. I mean, it's time to be a few more now, but it's less than ten. Otherwise, everything else is all straight local, which is which is good. But that's why people travel so much here when they could travel, you know. And in Ontario, the LCBO is the largest purchaser of alcohol on the entire planet, and they can get stuff in there, but they go through what's called the LCBO um, aging program, where they put fresh hazy IPAs on a warm warehouse shelf for three months because they have a 12 week waiting period same as Quebec so to do funny thing I guess because you know I see the, you know what I'm talking about for the beer festivals here the festival or the breweries who are running the festivals drive down pick up the kegs pay the fucking border fees for bringing too much back and just do it that way instead so then they're fresh at least to bring kegs and stuff back to, to festivals because the other way is not worth it yeah, when when we talk about like potentially exporting to Canada, Quebec is never included because it's way too complicated. We talk about it's LCBO, but it's like, does that really fit our beer quality concerns? Yeah. You wouldn't be able you'd be and able then, to do this probably, but you would. Yeah, and, that's and about the, it. And the stouts, and that's then about it. we mostly we mostly talk about British Columbia and Alberta, yeah, which sucks for us because that's what that's the. I mean, BC and then they get they get all the stuff out there. Because yeah, they because a, they, I mean, they let it make it. They work. do it. They bring it in. You know, they let they. I don't know. It's yeah. uh, it's interesting. It's always Western focused. So much easier. I understand. They even have. I have friends who own agencies out there, who are bringing in all the fire from the East Coast out there, but we don't yeah. get the fire from the West out here because it's too hot. It's just like it's too yeah. difficult. So I, I definitely see, I see why you would, you know, you would, wouldn't bother. As much as like this, I mean, there's this two sides to it because it's like it's kind of cool to travel and like I would come back, you bring a couple of cases back of Virginia beer, like, yeah, like, this is amazing and you get to enjoy this for the next couple of weeks or whatever and you know, this is my special thing, you can trade it out if you want to, whatever, but like, I don't know, it would just be nice to, I don't know, it's 2021, Prohibition was 100 years ago, 100, let's not forget, that's a large number and all of these laws and rules and regulations are redundant and based on 
that. So it's, you know, yeah. it's just so ridiculous and it's so difficult to, to stop businesses expanding and growing if they want to. Not all breweries want to grow. A lot of people just go, no, 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 I'm cool. I'm happy just servicing the neighborhood. Fantastic. Good for you. But if you guys want to grow, you have the capacity to grow and the urge to do it and you want to come out here, why, like, why should you be stopped? It's, it's, a, it's as long as you're adhering for whatever health or is a food product, what else matters? Who cares? Just make it work. I don't know. I just, I don't understand. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I'm glad you guys are at least able to jump into a bunch of markets and there's, there's a ton of potential for what it sounds like. This is great. Yeah. No, it's that, that all that stuff's not the most fun part of the brewing industry, but <laughs> everything else is, everything else is fun. So we'll, we'll take it. It's all right. Uh, it'll change. Hopefully, hopefully it'll, uh, you know, it's just a matter of time and, uh, yeah. maybe some pioneers and stuff to come through and just push it, push it, uh, push the That's buttons right. a little bit and get it done with, uh, with all that said, look, I don't want to take up too much time on your birthday. Um, this has been <laughs> awesome. If we're, we're pushing like three and a half hours, this has been a real genuine, fantastic conversation. I knew you guys were going to be cool, but like, I'm super impressed with the beer. You guys are awesome. I love your approach to everything. The story is awesome. Your, uh, you know, your focus on getting quality beer out there to a broader, you know, with an international perspective is just generally not something um, I see a lot. So, like, I'm more impressed than I even thought I would be, guys. You guys are fucking awesome, man. I really appreciate your time hanging out. And, uh, you know, this is, this is great. We definitely have to do this again, for sure. Um, I definitely want to keep in touch. You guys are, are fantastic. Stick around to the – I'm going to wrap this up, but stick around at the after. We'll say, we'll say goodbye once I wrap up uh, the live. But where can everybody find Virginia Beer Co. online? So uh, Virginia, VirginiaBeerCo.com, um, Virginia, the, the full state spelled out. But I think, I think we get redirects for VABeerCo.com uh, as well. So VirginiaBeerCo.com on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, at Virginia. Beer Co. We're very active on those three platforms. The website is fully updated. We've got a huge beer archive. So if you're finding our beer domestically here in the States, if you're finding the beer overseas, uh, you should be able to find more than enough information. But we tend to be very responsive on social media, uh, email, phone calls as well. So contact us by email, contact us by phone, contact contact us by social media. Um, if, If I don't get back to you, Chris will. Um, you know, we, we're, we're pretty, pretty actively engaged. So we're the, we're the ones traveling to promote beers and cheers overseas and, and domestically. And obviously we, we, we just want to share more of both with everyone. So we're looking forward to it and hopefully we can do this again a year from now and Chris's next birthday, maybe either <laughs> up where you are or down here where we are. Yes. We can make it an annual thing. We just always do a Chris's birthday, bring a Canadian flag, bring some poutine. Let's fucking go. <laughs> I'll get much more excited about my birthday if we make this yeah. happen. So thank you. I'm Honestly, in. I'm if ready. any excuse, it wasn't that bad. We drove to Virginia from Montreal. It wasn't that bad. It was like, how many hours 12. was it? 12, 14? We went to Philly. 12, we dro- 14. Right yeah, we stayed in Philly. And then we went to Alexandria first because that was where they sent us to. And Richmond, I think it was like Hampton, Norfolk, Virginia Beach type of thing. And then we came back through Williamsburg. Up to DC, it's doable. So it's around well, the corner. Well, next time, I'll take Robbie's advice, and we'll book you a private jet to fly down to see us, Craig. You know what? I feel like that would be a little more comfortable these days. You probably could take the mask <laughs> off for a little bit, you know, stretch the legs. Or, 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 
So, so we don't overpromise. It might be a private blimp, but either way, it'll be air travel. I'm here for the blimp, though. To be honest, the blimp sounds fun. You know, a little, a little slow, but I enjoy the journey. There's a lot of scenery. <laughs> the East Coast is beautiful. We're fortunate to be here. It's true. Very true. <laughs> um, Guys, thank you so much for uh, for hanging out. This has been a genuine pleasure, man. I knew this was going to be great, but uh, you guys exceeded everything. I appreciate you both. Um, guys, everyone, thank you for watching and listening. If you enjoyed the episode, smash the thumbs up. Hit subscribe below. Hit the notification bell so you know when the new new drops. Follow us on social media at BAOS Podcast. And check out the long-form audio. We are everywhere. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere. You can hear very attractive gentlemen like Robbie and Chris talk about craft beer. We are back I don't even know when we're going to be back. We're going on break. I forgot. Fuck yeah, this is awesome. Um, we'll be back doing these type of podcasts in September, but we're going to have something pre-recorded for the summer. And, um, mate, it's been a pleasure. Guys, thank you so much. Appreciate y'all. We'll see you guys thank next you. time. Cheers.